Welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio host, and nationally recognized safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Join us each week as we discuss the best and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. Follow Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe. Hey, everybody, this is your good friend, Dr. David Broden from down here in the North Star Recording Studio, where we have another great show lined up for you today. Our guest, Carl Hopp, coming to us from the great state of New Jersey. Hey, by the way, it is a brisk 71 degrees down here in the studio, so a little warmer today, even though we've had a little bit of snow on the ground outside. And if you don't believe me, just look at the video right now because it is snowing here at the North Star Recording Studio. So we're going to hit that kind of sweet spot intersection of understanding uh, COVID tracking as far as the Bluetooth, as far as phones. We're going to talk about Parler being hacked today. What the hell's going on with that? What does that mean for your data if you're in Parler or other social media platforms? And of course, uh, we're going to just kind of get deep into the rabbit hole of PPE, you know, what are different levels of PPE? Hey, we have a guest on who's worked in some of uh, the high security virus labs in our country. He's going to give us a talk about what are different levels, why should PPE never leave a gray area, right? So we're going to get into that. You can do me a solid subscribe to the show and uh, follow me on Twitter at safetyphd.com. I would greatly appreciate that. So thank you so much, everybody, um, about our guest. All right. Um, thank you. Let me uh, maneuver a few things here. All right. Good deal. Good deal. Red Crusader is in the house. Juan Ooh. is in the house. Hi, Red. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well represented on that side of the Mississippi. Um, Carl has worked in environment, health, and safety and facility management for over 25 years. He started working as a technician in laboratories, then evolving into managing academic, clinical, and basic laboratories in New Jersey. He was also an academic IT manager, educational video conferencing manager, and has been involved in emergency response for many years. Carl also has worked in emergency management, HAZMAT, Biomat, RADMAT for eight years. He also worked in EHS and data management in a corporate and manufacturing setting for six years. Currently, he is a contractor for multiple companies that are involved in management systems, EHS, and safety. In addition to that, he is out nightly chasing the jersey devil all right the last part not, might not be accurate but everything else is and so much more so carl welcome to the safety doc podcast thanks dave i'm glad to be here so um you know let's let's kind of get into um i i was checking on my phone just recently and i noticed that there was an app um well, i don't know if it's necessarily an app but it was uh, download. Um, there was the ability to turn on tracking for contact tracing for COVID. And uh, I didn't know what that was about. So I went online, did some research and found out actually that this 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 app, I guess, or, or part one of part two of an app, because there's apparently you go to the Google App Store, download the rest of it. But um, so I learned, yeah, this this happened between July and, and now this was being rolled out in <coughs> phones. Mm -hmm. And in, in Colorado, for example, a million people had turned on their notification. They downloaded the app, and so now there are a million people. 
and I'm assuming that number is increasing, um, who are participating in this this process. So so we've talked about this. Um, it, also, the the fact that this runs on Bluetooth, and I noticed um, when it was when I had Bluetooth on my phone, for example, when it was turned on, the battery life <laughs> would go down very fast. Oh, yeah, and and so um, so yeah. If you if if you can help us understand, um, you know what. what what is this app and I guess, how does it work with Bluetooth? Will you get within 10 feet of somebody? Um, Bluetooth recognizes that there's another Bluetooth device turned on, or I think it's a, it's kind of mysterious. I mean, for me, I'm not a tech person and yet here this, this app is, and I want to know more about how this type of app works. Sure. Okay. The way it works is that an individual has to voluntarily say, that they want to be part of this process, right? So the first thing they do is they say, yes, I want to be part of this. And then they're given a link to download this application. The application comes to their phone, okay? And then the, whoever is actually, you know, saying you want to be part of this sends them a six-digit code. Okay? Whoa, Okay. Okay. That's just to identify, you know, that you are you. Okay. So now what happens is the application is installed. And like any other application on your phone, it says, what permissions would you like? And you've seen that. Right. You know, do you want to turn this on? Do you want to turn? Well, the first thing it's going to do is it's going to say Bluetooth pass information, basically through the Bluetooth corridor. And then it's going to say, can we always stay on? Sure. Okay. So now you have an application and you are registered through this six-digit code. Okay. Now, somewhere in the middle of the world, there is a, uh, a place where this information is going back and forth. It's okay. usually where you're considered to be, you know, a positive case. But remember, everything I will say to you, to everybody who's listening, all of this is voluntary. You have to say yes. You have to say I will participate. You will have to say I want to do this. You have to say I want to install the app. Okay? Okay. It's all voluntary. If you say no, the whole process falls apart. Wow. So what happens is, um, you get this application, and it's it's constantly registering back to a server. And the server is saying to you, okay, you have this number. Okay, Now, Bluetooth is really small. It's about less than a quarter of a mile. Okay? Okay. Really small. So you create this thing called a personal area network or a PAN. So what happens is your phone is constantly looking for other people that are running the app, right? Gotcha. And it's looking for a connection the same way that your phone is looking for a connection for your headphones or your phone. Okay. Okay. So once it sees that connection and it sees the app, it makes the connection. If there's no data to exchange, then it's like, thanks. Goodbye. Wow. So, However, so, if you are if you're part of that group okay. that is participating with the information, right, right, then it passes that information 
to the other phone, any phone in the personal area network that is running the application. And the application now throws up a signal. Hey, you've been exposed to, but they can't tell you because of HIPAA, what do you want to do? So the point is that all of your phones are running this application with Bluetooth on, okay, draining your battery, looking for that connection. And if the connection is nothing, then it lets go. The same way if you wanted to run your speakers or your headphones, couldn't see it. So, But if this application is running with another application, yeah. and there's a signal coming from another one. So let, yeah. me throw, let me throw a couple scenarios out there. So, sure. so Carl, so what I have on the screen is, is off of my phone. This is exactly okay. the image, um, the, the screen capture from my phone. Yeah, it looks familiar. So, um, but so there's two parts to this though, right? In order for me to use this, I would need to also go in and download a companion app. Correct. And, and so my question to you is like, in all of the stuff that I've downloaded on my phone for apps or that's come preloaded, I, I can't remember one time, honestly, where I've had to go and download a companion app. It seems like I'm downloading, it, it, like, why isn't it already here? Why isn't it, I turn it on and then it's the, it's there? This seems kind of weird to me that there's well, just two steps. So help me understand. Google that. will do this. Google, if you download like Google Hangouts, you might need a companion app in order to operate your camera and your microphone. Okay. Okay. This is very normal. Okay. The problem is if they want a companion app, the question you should ask yourself is, what permissions does the companion app wish? Right. Do I need access to your camera? Do I need access to your contacts? Do I need access to your... Those are the questions you want to ask yourself. So do you, are you aware of what access this um, this app is asking? So when you when you turn this on... What is it asking? Can I can I track? Do I have access no, to your GPS? I, I, do I, I have? Can't, I, I can't answer that because I can only understand one app. I don't know the other ones. Okay. The one that I'm looking at says we need access to your contacts, which okay. does not make me happy. Right. It needs access to your Bluetooth. It need access to your ba the the base operating system so it can operate, and it needs access to they won't ask for Wi-Fi, but they will ask for calls. So, wow. So let me let me run through a scenario, okay? So I'm I'm thinking I I I don't have the app downloaded, but let's say I download the app and I have Bluetooth on. If I was going to uh, shop, you know, like at Walmart or something, right? Um, I'm just thinking. Well, it's likely that I would come across somebody that has. I mean, just that is has a positive test um, just for for, you know, it's a numbers game, right? Because I'm going to be in a population dense area or even even going through a parking lot or going into a store. So I, I look at this and I'm like, it, I, I don't know of scenarios in those population dense events where it wouldn't trigger like you wouldn't pass somebody in a hallway. You wouldn't breach that 10 foot distance. Cause what we're socially distanced at six feet, but everyone kind of comes in and out the same entrances and pass. So, um, so I'm, I'm trying to figure out what it, what, what might be the, 
I, what if I get notified tomorrow and it's like, okay, you know, yesterday, or or is it real time? I'm getting notified of saying, you know, you've you've just come in contact with someone who is is positive. It's, it's, I, I guess I'm trying to understand this. It's real time because it's, it's real time. It's okay. Bluetooth, the same way your your headphones are real time. They're not going to call you tomorrow and say, oh, guess what? It's not going to happen because it's a personal area network. It's constantly pinging, looking for everybody else that's holding the same app, and it's looking for somebody who's registered as a positive. Now, every every phone has an identification number, right? So every no matter what, like at some granular level, they know like this is my phone that has just done this, or right. So, but but I guess what do what what do you what's what's your thought on like if I get notified I'm looking around like is it that person is it that person now what do I do am I supposed well, to quarantine you, do I wash my hands do well, I you you can't know that because HIPAA says I can't tell you yeah you you you're not allowed to tell somebody somebody's personal health information they have to volunteer that so the application can say to you you have been exposed you may have possibly been exposed to somebody in where you're walking or where you're doing anything else within an eight to 10 foot area. And then it asks you to voluntarily. Remember you install the app voluntarily. It's asking you what you want to do next, but it can't tell you who or what, even if they, they want to contact trace you for anything. They can never tell you who or what. They can only say, we have a report that you have been, and that's the, HIPAA will only allow that. Okay. So so what what am I missing as far as the the value or what I should do then as the recipient of this information? Because then, I mean, I'm already, I guess, monitoring myself for mm-hmm. signs and symptoms, which everybody is, but um, what what do I do as the recipient of that information? Like how how would how would that benefit you? Um, because you're already taking precautions. You know what I'm saying? You're already uh, hypothetically masked up and and washing your hands. Um, I, I guess I'm trying to to understand if I get this notice, like oh my god, like you know. What do you do? I mean, it's just like if I've gone through a hot zone in Fukushima, like I'm driving through and all of a sudden it says this and how many, and I'm like, okay, I get it. I get it. Right. But like, what, so what do I do? So I guess that's the part of this. I I don't quite understand um, is, is what I would do. And then the second part is, is, and I, I know you've talked about HIPAA and FERPA, but at some level behind the scenes, this information is, is probably aggregating somewhere, at least to come up with some uh, informative measure for county health departments or charts that you and I maybe aren't seeing and stuff like that. But um, I, I don't know. I, I So I don't know if you can help me to better, uh, better understand, because this seems like one of those things of like, OK, I can receive the information, but then what do I what do I do with it? Like, what do I, how does it change my behavior? Well, that's a great question. The question is. What are you going to do? Okay. Right. And because all of it is voluntary, I can't tell you what the individual will do. Some individual might look at the app and go, that's nice. <laughs> the app, and just go off and, you know, get a, get a hamburger. 
Right. Or somebody might go, oh, my God, and then run in their house and throw a pillowcase on their head and make a blanket for it. You can't answer the question, right? Because you don't know what each individual is going to do. Okay. Right. So the question you're asking is kind of open ended. Oh, is that? Oh, my God, it's bacon. So the question <laughs> is, what, what do you do? And the answer is, it's up to the individual. Okay. The individual gets to make that choice. You know, I, I don't see the sheriff's office on my front porch telling me do right. this, right? At the same time, if you've been notified that you, and I'm going to put my hands in quotes, might have been exposed, right? What the, the individual gets to make the ultimate choice, you know? Okay. So, you know, if, if you've downloaded this app and this is what occurs and you realize it's going to happen, the question is, what are you going to do? Are you going to voluntarily call your health department and then lock yourself in your house for 14 days because your phone went off? Right. Okay. Right. You can do that. That's fine. Or the answer is you can go, okay, that's kind of cool. Close the phone and then go off and get a hamburger or whatever you're doing. But nobody can actually say to you, you got an announcement, you must do this. So I guess the question that, you know, just, just is bouncing around in my head is, so why do this app then? I mean, why, why, and I guess here's, here's another part of it, right? So, you know, <laughs> this, this always bothers me. It's it's the 5.30 ABC News, at least 5.30 Central Time um, with David Muir. It's like just, you know, breaking as we come on the air, you know, um, certain mouthwashes have been found to kill coronavirus. And I mean, right. literally like last week, right? Or it was Pepsid, you know, a couple of months ago. Don't rush out to your pharmacy and buy Pepsid, of course, which everybody did. But but I'm like this, you know, I found out about this passively through I don't a friend who who said yeah this is down on on the phones and I'm like whoa it is on my phone what the hell and then but I'm like wow why wasn't this part of um yeah the the lead off story instead of mouthwash or you know something else um for ABC you know nightly news or something like that why why did this not have a, a campaign around it to let people know because I would say like there's a there's a lot of people don't even know it's it's on their phone now. Why wasn't there a campaign? Hey, this is now on your phone. This is the purpose of it. Uh, this is how it, it benefits you. This is how it benefits other people around you. At least like a, a campaign, right? To bring bring awareness. And to me, the fact that that didn't happen is pretty disturbing and alarming. As somebody who works in safety, and, and Carl, you know, for you know your your work in safety also, like um, you know, it's like in, in installing you know, new safety measures at one of the companies or businesses you're working at and, and not telling anybody about it. Saying, oh, by the way, we put an AED in these three hallways, but <laughs> we didn't share it at, you know, uh, the the monthly meeting or we, you know, bring people's awareness to it. So I'm, I'm struggling with this of saying, okay, like I don't quite understand what I'm supposed to do if I'm the recipient of this. But in addition to that, 
like, why was this not part of a central campaign? And also you could spin this right as a, as a very positive thing. Like you could have had, I'm not trying to go down a conspiracy angle on this, but I'm saying you could have said, this is a way for us to um, keep you better informed to, you know, to, um, you know, make it, I, I don't know. There, there could have been ways to put that together. Right. But nothing. So I hear about it kind of covertly. A lot of people don't even know it exists. Um, people aren't sure what to do when they get the information, which you've said, and I've also, you know, found that in articles too. People are like, well, I've been, you know, it buzzed or it came up with this thing and then it listed, wash your hands where things that people are already doing. So, so kind of help me. And also, and I want to get back to this bacon put in, and I, I know you and I talked about this in another conversation. We'll get back to it. What happens when this is no longer an app? But the next time you update your operating system, it is just part of your operating system. Well, so we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. You, you and I had to talk, Dave. And my answer is, if somebody puts something as part of my operating system on the phone that I pay for and I decide what I'm going to install, I'm going to take a ball-peen hammer to my phone. That's not the way it works. Okay. The second answer or the second question you ask is, why didn't they uh, announce this broadly? Well, fear doesn't make money. We know that. And the other answer is it depends on where you are. If you're in New Jersey, uh, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, that type of thing, this was widely broadcast to all of us. Install the app. Keep yourself really? safe. Okay. Do I... everything else. When I, you know, when I see all this, it's just like, you know, Keep you safe. Keep everyone safe. Install the app. But there's no question about where does the data go? Right. Who sees the data? What happens when I do this? It's just go to Google Play or go to Apple, install the app, accept all the permissions, and let all the information on your phone go wherever it goes. And, and so, Carol, when you, when you bring that up right, right off the bat of saying – that there was there was a campaign in New Jersey, like there was nothing there was. Wisconsin. There was nothing. There was nothing. Um, no, not nothing in Wisconsin. So um, really? no, no, God, there was nothing. It's bull rush in the house. Welcome, bull rush. Oh um, Lord. Bull Rush, Texas. They notified Bull Rush. And then he got so upset he went and kicked his new cedar fence down that he had to rebuild it. Yeah, but I, so I, let, I remember <laughs> I remember Connecticut being very vocal about this and saying. See, that's it. That's interesting because here it wasn't at all. And and also I don't recall it again being on the ABC, you know, the nightly news. And I and I do well, track I didn't the see it on the news either, Dave. I didn't see it. It was just kind of a um I remember the, the governor of New Jersey doing one of his EOs, one of his multiple EOs, yeah, announcing this. Hey everybody. You can help keep yourself safe and everybody else safe if you. Right. Yeah. Should I? I mean, we didn't. We didn't have it around here, so it's interesting to hear. Um, so, so our our good friend Mictibus in the in the chat is asking, um, wh which begs the question: if if the notifications are anonymous, who is to say that based on genuine information? Or, or just to further their agenda? I, I, I think this is timely, right? Because we know today, Parler. Um, had its uh, user information hacked. They, yeah, they acknowledged that. that. So, 
So I think where Mictibus is going here, and of course, it's my question too, because I wrote about it in School of Airs. By the way, if you don't own this book, damn it, buy it. Buy, buy it for Christmas. Book. It's on my Kindle. Hard copy. It's also Kindle. But um, yes, yes, it's a good book about understanding chaos uh, management and how to survive and thrive in chaos. But um, so, so the question comes up here of like, okay, so we see these hacks all the time. Remember, you know, what Equifax or whatever the hell, like uh, the big three with our, our, um, you know, uh, personal information as far as like credit loans and stuff like that was hacked. <laughs> you know, Yahoo. I'm still waiting for my settlement on my Yahoo email account being hacked. You know, I, but yeah, so don't hold your breath, <laughs> right? But the question, you know, right is like. What if somebody hacks this? What if what if now you know it's Bluetooth? How how vulnerable is Bluetooth to being um hacked? This information you said go, you know, as we know, it goes somewhere, right? Otherwise, this wouldn't be put together. And how how susceptible is that somewhere? I mean, we have major hospitals across the country, major corporations that have been hacked, ransomware. You know, they've paid millions of dollars to get their right. information released. But um, but I'm looking at this saying, whoa, like this, this would this would put my HIPAA in protected information. Right. If I did pet, test positive and, you know, I had my phone on everywhere I went and some of that information got hacked. There could be this map of everywhere that I went. I, and I, I guess I don't I, I'm trying to look at this of saying, I don't know. I don't understand the system at all. I don't know the measures in place that keep it protected. I don't know how I would be notified if it was compromised. Who's behind the scenes running this? I mean, so great. And the answer is nobody knows. (laughs) That's the problem. You know, we don't know where the data is going. My, My big always question is, it's great that you're collecting data. Where does the data go? And if we don't know where that data is going, why are you supplying it? Okay, that's always my big question. If you are voluntarily supplying information, where is my information going? And you get those things in your credit card bills, you know, with the big list of, you know, where is your data going and everything else? And nobody has seen any information about this. And let's face it, you all signed up for iTunes and you never read the EULA. Right. It was 249 pages. Yeah. Right. So we don't know where this is really going and we don't know what's going to happen. Okay. So it's kind of, it's, it's, I mean, so, so I understand, you know, one thing if, if, um, well, I mean, I don't want any personal, personal data hacked, but this is, this is right. Medically, possibly medically sensitive data. So, so this, this elevates, I think to a different, uh, well, a level federal, of concern, right? It, it goes up a little bit to a federal event, yeah, because that's how HIPAA works. It's called uh, PHI, Personal Health Information. And unless you, it, between you and your physician, and unless you want to volunteer it to somebody, that's on you. Okay, and yes, um, Bull Rush is right. Bluetooth is not secure. It's it's just it's not okay. Um, yeah. So, so let me let me pause you right there. So Bluetooth isn't secure, but yet like this whole operating system is built off of Bluetooth <laughs> to well, to notify people of COVID. So why build it off of something that isn't secure? 
Because, well, it's not that it's not secure. It's that it's short range. Okay. Okay. The whole idea behind it is, you know, our phones have a cellular network, which is pretty large range. But Bluetooth is really short range. Bluetooth, unless it's really beefed up, really works about a quarter of a mile, maybe. Okay. Okay. So... When you have a Bluetooth, which is why when you get in your car, your headphone works. Right. When you have to speak, because it's right there. But Bluetooth to your printer, what is it, 200 feet, 300 feet? Maybe? Right. Right. Yeah, my printer is literally two feet to the left of me right now. So, yeah. so there's your answer. And... You know, it's a short-range item. So if you're trying to broadcast something in a personal area network, which whether it be I'm talking to your printer, I'm talking to your headphones, I'm talking to your car, it's still a personal area network between you and another device. So now you are in public, and it's constantly polling do you have this app? Do you have this app? Do you have this app? Oh, you have this app? Right. Do you have information I need to know? No, I have information you need to know. Send the information over. Because it's personally available. Okay? It's not miles and miles and miles. Wow. So the idea behind it is, if you're trying to say 8 feet, 15 minutes, stand on one foot, whatever it happens to be, Bluetooth is perfect for that because Bluetooth is short range. It's a personal area network. Wow. And uh, Sast says, yes. Sast, I watched that today. I understand and I agree. So... Let's um let's shift off of this a little bit. So thanks, Carl, for you know for talking about that and understanding uh, Bluetooth and um, how this this works and um, also you know the questions we need to be asking of what are we giving permission to and also the the what hasn't been explained like for example you said New Jersey Connecticut you know some states had, had New York campaigns to make you aware and to urge you to download it but but uh, I'm less clear on where this is going and how it's protected. And if it's breached, um, what that impact might be for me, how I would, how I would be informed if this information was, was breached. And I guess also, again, again, I'm still not seeing how this benefits me as a recipient, exactly what I'm supposed to do differently if I'm already doing precautionary measures. And, you know, like, for example, I'm close to Dane County, uh, Madison, Wisconsin, our state capital. And they just said, when you go out, expect that you will be in close proximity to someone that has uh, tested positive. That's been that's been on the news. So they said, you know, again, wash your hands, you know, do wear, wear a mask, make sure that you're changing out, you know, mask and things like that. But um I guess I'm not. I, I'm. I'm still not seeing this. What I would. What I would anticipate would be a a information campaign that would have come along with this. Um, and to me, that's a very disturbing part of the rollout of this. That there wasn't this. This. And even now, like the only way that I can find out about this is to really find third party articles that are written about it. There isn't one site that says. 
you know, COVID-19 exposure notification app. All you need to know, frequently asked questions. Like, that doesn't exist. <laughs> so, but, like, why doesn't I'm, it exist? I'm like, sure why doesn't it exist? Roll it out, we'll have that. The right. question in my mind is, is it simply, you know, we're all so comfortable with just downloading an app on our phone. And we're also very comfortable with just accepting permissions. Sounds good. I want the app, right? And the other end is, you know, what are you doing? And what are you exposing yourself to, which you just said? So, so I'm gonna I'm gonna change a, change gears a little bit on on this. Um, so, yeah, fasting um, fasting story of of when when you were working um, in a, a, a virus lab. Uh, yes, uh, and and. So I, I want you to to educate people to um, just what the different levels of of that involve, you know, as far you know, and also the fact. And you and I were talking about this, and I was thinking about this the other day. Like, you know, when you when you are in um, a, a virus lab environment, for example, um, your PPE isn't recycled. Like, it, it hits what was called you said a gray zone, and then it doesn't go beyond that. But like, I know people, many people, right who have made homemade PPE as far as a, a mask, right? And the, and this, they've worn this mask from March 15th to present. <laughs> and, they, and, and most of them probably haven't like washed it, sprayed it with Lysol, done anything. They just like, when they're done with it, it they just take it off and shove it in the cup holder in their car. Yeah. Or so you're in their pocket and then they bring it out the next day. And and with your expertise in, in again, you know, hazmat, biomat, radmat of, of the fact that, um, first of all, y- you know, that, that we're, we're using PPE, which is homemade, which I remember the first few weeks of coronavirus, um, kind of the cascade, in, you know, the information, you know, if you can't get an N95 mask, here's like the second best thing. Make a mask out of like an old T-shirt and here's rubber bands on how to do that. And, you know, like TV shows of showing you here's mm-hmm. the news anchor on whatever. We're going to bring somebody right. in. And I'm like, holy shit, like you can actually... I mean, like that's a T-shirt, and this is like a N95 mask. Like, there's a difference in that, right? Yeah, and, a little bit of a difference, yeah. But but it was so weird. And actually, I mean, this isn't. I, I'm not. This isn't hyperbole. I saw people with crocheted mask. I saw people with the most bizarre things that that you know would kind of create this 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 mask. You know that would kind of yeah. come down. Anyway, like like a beak type thing, but um. But tell me, tell me about what you experienced working in a lab, and then also like how that that conflicts with what people are doing today with PPE. Okay. Um, well, the most dangerous lab I ever had to get into was a virology lab. Okay, there's a thing called biological levels. It's just a qualification. Okay, BL one is really weak. Okay. There, you, it's just, it's a, you know, you sneeze, you cough, it's that. You know, that's the common cold type of stuff. BL2 is when it becomes blood, sputum, spittle. That's the hepatitis. You know, you get the idea. Okay, BL3 is when it becomes a respiratory event. 
That's the tuberculosis and those types of issues. Okay. Four and five are the really, really bad stuff. That's the Lhasa and the Ebola. And you watch the hot zone and, you know, that type of nasty stuff. The guys in the big suits and everything else. Okay. Yeah. So, so you're kind of gradying that. When you're thinking about the, the standard influenza virus, it's at level two. Okay. Okay. The worst lab I was ever in was a virology laboratory. Okay. It was in the basement of a facility. You couldn't get there. It was marked, you know, please don't come here. It was, nobody knew where it was. Okay. And when you went into that area, you went into an area where one door shut and the other door wouldn't open. Until gotcha. one door was shut. Gotcha. You had to show identification. Yeah. You had to put on a lab coat and booties. You had to put on a mask. You had to put on gloves. Okay. Then you could go into the next area. And that's where we were doing processing of other information or, or, or material. Right. When you went to leave, you had to pack everything up. It had to be in qualified containers, which meant sealed red bags seal it up close the box had to be sealed okay and gotcha. when you back into that other area where i told you the doors wouldn't open if one was open or not you had to take off your gloves you had to take off your mask you'd take off your lab coat and you had to put it in a in a box you know for disposal or for cleaning right you had to show your id again if, you, if your face didn't match the ID, they didn't open the door. Then they would open the door to the public area and you could move around. And so this is virus, right? So virus this is what is you're talking about. Things like TB. This is things, uh, I'm trying to think, of, um, uh, MRSA, okay, right. C. diff, things that are really, really bad right? That, that, that we see in like nursing homes and things like that. But you couldn't just wander around and just do this. You had to prove you could go in and go out. And when you went out, you had to take it to a specified area. And you needed to put the material in. You had to seal the thing. You had to log it out. And it was very, very uh, complicated. But you couldn't walk out with a pair of gloves I couldn't walk out with a mask into the public area right. or the lab coat or my booties or anything. They wouldn't open the door. So give me your take. <laughs> so give me your take then on, um, uh, you know, I guess PPE today, right? Um, there is no, you know, standard for PPE. I mean, it's, it's basically, it's it, the direction is wear a mask, at least in my area, that's the direction direction is to wear a mask. Mm -hmm. So, so it is, it is a combination. I would say 50% of them are homemade mask in my area and the rest are, you know, whether it be a, and you know, maybe an N95, but maybe just a dust mask, um, you know, mm -hmm. for someone that's doing woodwork, but, but it's all over the place. And, and the thing is there's no checking, of that, right? I mean, there's nobody at the front of a store 
or any place that you're going in who's verifying that your mask meets whatever standard. So this seems really um, uh, contraindicated, really bizarre that, uh, you know, th these definitely have different levels of efficacy to them. I mean, some could have little efficacy at all, depending upon, um, you know, how much, uh, how much um, the space is, you know, between the, the weaving and stuff like that. Um, and then I also saw, I, I remember this on our local news, right? They're showing people who are making masks at home and then bringing them to, you know, healthcare workers and whatever. And and so they're, they're sewing like three layers of cloth together. And I'm like, okay. I mean, but it, I, I, how do you know this is effective? Like, I mean, there's no science behind this. This is, this is kind well, of crazy. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, what, is, what, what did you say? <laughs> no science. Right. There's, there's zero yeah, science I think you're right, Dave. method. Yeah. And then, um, so, so this is what's absolutely boggling to me. Um, and it, 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 it is, Really, I mean, so my my kids go to school, right? They have to wear a mask, but as long as they wear a mask, it doesn't matter. They they meet the requirement of wearing a mask. Wow. So so I guess I look at this of saying, um, you know, for you, I would say, I wouldn't say, but you know, we've had conversations with your expertise. This has to be really frustrating, right? Because it's like it's like somebody saying, "Oh, this is a fire truck now because I have a hose on it, and I've got." Uh, you know, um, a fire extinguisher and a 50 gallon container of water. So it's a fire truck. Right. <laughs> so it's like, right. No, it's not a goddamn fire truck. Well, it's not. When, when I was very, very young, I remember going to class, right? And what they would say is, let's talk about logic. And they would say, a dog has four legs and fur, right? And then they would say, this is an animal, it has four legs. And it has fur. Therefore, it's a dog. But it's a cat. Logically, it makes sense, but it doesn't work. Okay? One of the things that I think is the most frustrating is when perception equals reality. Yeah. If I'm wearing a mask, I'm safe. If I'm doing this, I'm right. doing my part. And the question, because when you move to a, a place of, you know, really critical thinking, you start saying, if I'm doing this, I'm doing my part. But am I really doing something? Right. Right. And that's the biggest argument. And the problem here is, you know, when, when you start looking at, like, New Jersey or anything else, executive orders aren't laws. They only apply to state agencies or state individuals. They don't apply to the individual because it hasn't been ratified through the state legislature, hasn't been voted in. Okay. It's not a law. So what do we do? We make it a regulation. Well, regulations don't have to get certified. They just have to be mandated and moved in. Right. Right. So now suddenly it's not a an executive order. It's a regulation. And then the regulation pours down to, is this the Board of Health? Is this the Water Board? Is this the whatever it happens to be? And then everybody just goes, well, that's the way it is. Right, right. right. And that becomes what, what we like to call the categorical imperative. I guess it's the rules. We got to do it. And the answer should be, but that's the rules. 
why are we doing it? And that's an important question, right? Right. Um, but no, you're right. They're, they're doing things that don't seem to have a, a really effective efficacy. And the other end is the regulations change every 10 minutes, which doesn't allow you to really understand or what you're doing. You can't really get solid ground. Today I have to do this, but on Tuesday I have to do that. But Thursday it has to be purple. There's no way for an individual to get comfortable and feel safe when they're constantly changing the rules. it's, It's like deciding you're going to play football, and instead of playing by the rules, you just move the goalposts around and then say, we're still playing the game. It doesn't make sense. You can't win because the rules don't aren't solid. And the biggest problem about the rules not being solid is individuals cannot follow them. They can't get comfortable. Right. They don't understand why they're doing it. They're just being told to do it or they can't buy milk or they're being told to right. do it because they right. can't go outside. But they don't are they're not being told why they're right. only being told the goalpost has moved 20 feet and now you have to follow this goalpost. You can't take personal responsibility if you're constantly moving the rules around. Right. And yeah. you can never get comfortable, which Absolutely. is really, I think, the issue. Remember when um, it was after uh, September 11, 2001, uh, Homeland Security rolled out the, uh, the threat um, color code index. So we right, went through right, right. like like a year or something where today is yellow, you know. And right. We, we all have our color codes. Today's a yellow day. Today's a <laughs> like, day. And, and it, you know, it, it was obviously um, you couldn't keep track of it. And to try to get that at a granular level for what that meant for what I do today. Today is a, yeah, purple day. Okay. Um, and then they had to drop it. And and I think, Carl, you're bringing up a good point with this is, is it's just basically getting people. You had a term for it. Categorical. What? Categorical. Imperative. It's when the appeal to the rules makes more sense than any of this. I guess these are the rules. We must follow them yeah. without the question of right. are these rules effective? How do these rules affect me? What shall we do? The other end of that is subjective which is when you start saying, I'm going to follow the rules that affect me in this moment that are the best for me, okay? And somewhere in between, there's a a good thing. You know, if you decide to walk to the left instead of the right, that's a subjective imperative. If you decide to wait at the crosswalk, that's a categorical imperative. You've decided that's how it's going to work. However, if one day they say stop at the crosswalk and then the next day they go, no, wait, the crosswalk is dangerous. You have to go 20 feet to the left of the crosswalk. And then on Thursday they go, no, wait, 20 feet to the left of the crosswalk is bad. Go 20 feet to the right and wait four minutes. Right. There's no way for the individual to actually say, I'm going to do the right thing for myself. I'm going to do the right thing for my community. I'm going to do the right thing for my society because you're constantly changing the rules. I can never win. 
I can never do the right thing. That's exactly right. Customers see value. So, so what I just brought up, um, yeah, is a slide from my 2019 PBS presentation, customer perceived value. And this was framed in the context of school safety. Um, when the perceived value is increased student safety, it's practically unthinkable to assign a price tag to peace of mind. Or, or basically, if someone came in and said, um, here, install XYZ device and um, it will keep students safer in this exact scenario that would have to play out for this device to, to counter it. People are like, well, if there's a chance, if there's a one in a thousand chance, and I wrote about that in my book, and I actually showed pictures of bollards, which are put in front of my daughter's school. Right. Um, and and talk yeah, about that. I, I so so you know, um, and I the the district burned the cash. What was a, it? Was a state grant, um, and the state was very restrictive too, like on on things you could use a grant for. It was very much customer perceived value, social proof, things that you could see, cameras bollards, fences, stuff like that. Um, you know, uh, very um, overbuilt, you know, door locks, stuff mm -hmm. like that. And um, so the bollards, and I go by these on a pretty regular basis because I have to go past them to get to the high school track, which is a few blocks away. Um, and usually at night, I'll go out on, on the track for a little bit. But um, so I'm looking at these and I'm like, well, what, what the hell? Like, why were these installed? And actually, let me just bring up a, a picture um, to give give some context for for these bollards, so I've got it uh, right here. I've got it tagged out. Okay, so so this is that's that's the front yeah. of the school, and those are those are the bollards that were drilled in. So to give a little perspective, like um, so you can see in front of the bollards, there's a solid, easy thirty feet of concrete and road that doesn't have bollards, right? So there's just bollards right, right there. So. But um, and in back of the school where all of the kids load on the buses, no bollards. But um, so you put these bollards in front of the school, and and the, and I also checked you. The, it, they only um, um, uh, met um, disability access by an inch on each side. So, well, so thirty <laughs> inches at the at the least, right? <laughs> right. right. So, so you these, got a wheelchair through them, right? And they do. And I was the special education director, and you know, I know also more. The wheelchairs are getting larger, you know, too. Um, but, but anyway, uh, I'm looking at this of saying this isn't how schools are attacked. Like I study this, and it, but it was the time when the nice France attacks occurred, and and this was was in the contemporary. So people are thinking, well, um, if we do this, you know, people aren't going to be driving a car through the front doors of a school. Yeah, like, not, yeah you're not going to see a U-Haul drive through the front door. And, and, and I'm like, okay, yes. Like, technically, that's accurate. Technically, would these things stop a vehicle? Probably, like, in this scenario, because you couldn't build up much speed. And so, so you know, the argument is this, this isn't that this wouldn't work. It's just, like, this isn't how schools are attacked. Um, you know, most of the, the school attacks are from, um, you know, students who are bringing weapons into the school. So More this, of an individual event? Right, right. So so this isn't, you know, this, it, it, but then, you know, it, as Carl, we talked about, there, it's not just that this creates something now that, okay, you have this in front of school and people can see these big yellow things, but they create a hazard because in winter, you know, we have snow here in Wisconsin and it gets icy around these things. And I wrote in the book about Pete Medic from Ohio um, did studies on trails where they put bollards on trails to try to keep vehicles off. And people are dying. Bicyclists are running into this cross country runners. So, you know, the runner in front of them moves left or right and suddenly they hit the bollard. People are getting maimed and killed. Like 
Um, but this is something that just really from a, a data standpoint, it was useless. And here's something else. I talked to the superintendent of the school and I said, um, tell me about the safety study that you did to turn, you know, determine your priorities when you came up with this. And, um, you know, it's always kind of a weird situation when, when like, you know, you're, the, <laughs> you're a safety guy and your kids go to school there and, you know, work with superintendent. But I said, um, you know, tell me about this. And, and they just admit it. Yeah. Two-way radios is a big concern for us. Because I said, tell me about your two-way radio communications, because you always have to communicate back and forth between buildings, within buildings. Yeah, it was a problem. They didn't have enough radios. Um, the radios were still digital and analog, so they didn't have this. But basically, like, you could have spent money on radios, which you use every day if a kid has a seizure, if you have to, you know, get emergency out to a playground because a kid's been injured. Right. All these different reasons why you'd use a radio. But yet, like, the money wasn't spent there. It was spent on the customer perceived value. Well, so, so I guess the question I'm going to ask you is, yeah, why don't we see this in manufacturing facilities? Well, tell me about that. Tell me we about don't. that. You don't. You don't. They're not there. You you see them at Target. You see them at Walmart. You see them in schools. Is it because it's public, and therefore, as you said, customers perceived value? Oh, we're keeping you safe, except for that one. I remember. I remember the city. The Target had that that thing with the the red ball on the bollard. Right. It rolled off and hit a car. Really? <laughs> okay. How's this keeping you safe? The, right. the I think the point you're trying to make is that when the public comes in and out, if they feel safe, right, they think they are safe. And that's, you know, that links back to what you were saying before. If I throw something on my face, I feel safe. Right. But I'm not, but is am I really safe? And then the answer becomes, when does it become a regulation? When does somebody say schools must have three bollards at 12 feet in front of every main office entrance? Yeah. So, so let me. And then the question, of course, I hate to interrupt you. The question is, who pays for that? Right. Right. I mean, we do. Like it, it, that would likely come out of a state grant um, that would be but dispersed you can against get a grant, unless of course they just tear it into your sixty-one point two percent administrative cost for schools and raise your taxes to right. install this. Okay. Right. And the question that I ask is, and, and this is a weird question. I'm, I'm, I'm talking to somebody who is actually out there listening. Um, when the teachers are told they have to clean the desks between each class because it makes them feel safe, does it really keep people safe? What about the exposure to the teacher? Who pays for the supplies? Who does all these things? But ultimately, it's because, well, they're going to do the work and we're going to feel good about it. Right. Well, let's face it. Feeling good isn't doing good. And who's the exposure to? Is it like, okay, the teacher's going to wipe down all the desks, so one teacher's exposed, but 20 students aren't? And the question is, what about that one teacher? Right. Right. And there are exemptions now, ways to fatigue the system. Um, 
which, you know, students with disabilities, um, there can be a doctor's order saying, you know, a student with a disability doesn't, uh, isn't required to wear a mask. And so again, we see these fatigue points in our, in our system. Um, and, and you and I had, had, you know, had talked about that. Um, so let me, I, I, I want to reverse back to a point um, that I think Mictibus made earlier. You know, Carl, what is, what is your perception of a likelihood that something like a, this COVID app um, could, you know, in two, three months just become like, hey, we're going to update your operating system. You download it and there it is. It's part of an operating system. How easy is it for that to happen? Or I guess, like, how would people even know if that happened? Like, what should people be thinking about? Well, when you're actually updating your phone, you get a, a message. It tells you what gets updated. You get information about that, right? What you don't get is the information of whether you can accept components of your update or not. You don't get to do it a la carte. I can't say, well, I want this security update and I want this Google Play update. Right. And right. I want it. But, but this update that's going to report on me wherever I'm going to the grocery store, yeah, I don't want that. You don't get it. You have to take the whole wad. Or you so, don't. Right, right. So, I mean, that's the thing. Um, I mean, we could be, um, you know, this could just be a native part of an operating system pretty fast. Yes, it could. I mean, I mean, let's face it. Uh, you, you have to take your phone and you have to turn it on high, medium, or low tracking. Do you want to be known where you are in 50 feet on Google Maps, 100 feet on Google Maps, 500 feet on Google Maps? or you don't want to know. You get the opportunity to choose that, right? However, right. if you're trying to install something like this, you, the first thing it's going to do is say, well, you can turn Bluetooth off manually if you remember on a Tuesday at 2. Right. Other yeah, because most of us, you know, we go into our car, we have to have Bluetooth on to sync with the car. So if we get a phone call or something like that, and are you turning it off? And I'm going to share a picture that Mictibus um, uh, just oh, shared yeah. with me. I'm actually reading his message. He's, he's right to some extent. Yep. And he that's, it's, uh, the, you know, that's someone taking a pair of underwear and, and modifying them to be a face mask. Um, you know, and again, so, you know, this is, no one's going to really question this, right? Because store employees will be like, okay, this apparently, you know, meets yeah. the requirement. They don't want to get into a conflict. And right. And and so these things of of you know, again, Carl, with your expertise, um is I guess how would you roll out what should be a standard for PPE? Like, so everybody kind of knew and had a basil, like you could count on everybody to at least have this standard of PPE and, and like this whole thing too, of like um, I, I'm surprised too. There hasn't been a campaign of, or again, this education is really sketchy to me. Like people, have, I, I know so many people that just take their mask and literally it's the same mask from nine months ago. Um, so like, tell me what, what should be like a minimum, how you'd go about educating people to that. 
uh, should we be selling things now? I mean, like the Walmart stuff that's being sold. I mean, I've I've seen a lot of, um, how should I say it? Um, aesthetic, you know, mask, decorative mask. Here, it's a Wisconsin right. Badgers logo mask, a Green Bay Packers right. mask. I'm like, Vista print can help. Yeah, I get it. It's become a it's become a commercialized accessory. Right. I, I've said this before. If they suddenly turned around and said you had to wear lead-lined underwear, <laughs> okay, and you had to crawl three feet on the ground, magically, 80% of the people would be buying lead-lined underwear on Amazon. It would be in 14 different colors. <laughs> They'd be crawling on the ground, and they would be taking selfies on Instagram going, hashtag lead-lined. It would, they would just do it, right? Because they're not thinking about what it's actually doing. And that's right. the important thing. What would I do as a standard? Well, let's face it. It's a virus. Okay. The largest virus known that I can remember, okay, is 0.14 microns. Okay. And that's a big piece of equipment. Okay. okay. That's a big virus. Okay. Remember, viruses are not alive. Okay, they don't they don't have a brain, gotcha. and they're what the size they are, and they're either DNA or RNA, depends on the virus. Okay, now we're going to scale up. Your this vest, my shirt, everything else has a warp and a weave that is about fourteen microns when it's tightly made. You know, thank you Van Heusen or whatever it happens to be. Right. Okay. Um. A particulate mask, which is for particles, you know, smoke, dust, things like that. Okay. That's at about the 10 micron range. It, you can stop drywall dust, which is about 12 microns. Okay. Now you scale down. Okay. You start getting a really small particles like lead, which are really tiny. Okay. 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 Things like that. You need the, the four to five micron range. Okay. So once you get down to that level and you realize that that's going to stop it, at some point in time, you got to stop using a mask and you've got to use a half face respirator. Okay. Right. Right. Because that has cartridges and that can do some, some different things. And that has a, a positive seal, you know, around this. Which is what you need. So now we've moved from 12 microns to 10 microns, and we realize the biggest virus that we know is 0.12 microns. Right. That's very, very tiny. And so the problem is it's it's kind of like me saying, if I wear a piece of cheesecloth on my head. And I go to fight a forest fire, I'll be okay. And the answer is, no, you won't. <laughs> it's it, the, the holes are too big, right? What I would do if you asked me what would be the standard, I would go back to the CDC's fifth annual, I'm sorry, fifth edition BMBL, Biological Manual, Biological Laboratory Manual. They wrote the book. Okay. Gotcha. And the first thing, it's called the big purple book. And the first thing is you don't just home make your PPE. You use qualified 
manufactured and tested for quality control materials to protect yourself, whether that be gloves, goggles, whatever it happens to be. The second one is that you only use these materials in a gray zone between the white zone, which is the public, and then the red zone or the hot zone where you're going to experience things. You do not remove your PPE from the gray zone. Okay, if, you have, if you're dealing with anything besides a biohazard level two, you do not remove it. You, you have to dispose of it. You have to store it. Okay. So for me saying, okay, if this thing is so deadly on the table, but it's not over there, but I can put my mask in the baby's crib and it doesn't make sense. The CDC is telling you to do something. And then their own manual is saying, don't do something. Right. Doesn't make sense. You know, if, if a store said to you, okay, you have to come in. Here's your PPE, go in the store, walk around, and then when you leave the store, they wipe down your bags and they actually collect your PPE? Right. See, logically, that makes sense. Well, right? we don't have that makes, anymore. That, right. that makes sense. If, if you are actually going to a nursing home, for example, okay, right. I can imagine in, in this area, if you're worried about influenza, and my mother was in a nursing home with influenza, okay, you know, we didn't go to her room. We we went to the common area, and that's where we saw her because the volume of space is bigger. Everything is bigger. We can keep things cleaner. But if I went into her room, what's going to happen? Am I going to make her sick? Did she already have C. diff? Did she already have MRSA? Did she Am I going to aggravate an existing condition? Because it's a smaller space. Right? Wow. So when you think about that and you think about minimizing that risk, the idea behind that is if you're in a larger area with larger air changes and you're doing all that and you're taking appropriate precautions. I'm not saying don't hug your mom. Yeah. But I am saying if you have a sniffle, Maybe that's not the day to go to the nursing home. So I want to build off of a point you made. And and, and first, so um, COVID-19 is um, is about 0.12 microns in diameter. Yes, I spelled it wrong, but N95 protects to 0.1 microns. So, so, so per this, it would seem logical that um, if you are inhaling, right, um, that a... N95 would be what you would want. Um, well, that's a particulate mask. It's better than nothing. Right. However, when you have a 99% survival rate. Right. I did, so that's, that's a right, huge no, Yeah, you're, you're right on, Carl. I mean, so this is, this is the question that when you start to take phase validity, right? When you start to look at what, okay, you're going out to Walmart or you're going out to restaurants or whatever, and you're just watching what people have for mask or the fact that they touch their mask several times in their face and whatever, and they're touching <laughs> handles. In the world, right? You go inside and people are, are grabbing the same door handle one after another, after another, after another, after another. I'm like, ah, wow, okay. All these little... Like no one has done this hyper analysis of fatigue points. Like I, I look at my kids' schools and I'm like, wow, if I just spent 
a couple hours, I could find many points that were, you know, like like very redundant points where students, um, you know, came through, grabbed handles, and there wasn't sanit, you know, they weren't sanitized, and, and some of these things, and it just gets crazy. But um, mm-hmm. before before we get on here, I did find a picture of our friend Bacon Maldito. Um, he was he was out on on the beach today um, in California, and he did say I could share it, so I'm going to. So here it is. So bacon, um, you need a little more of a tan, buddy. Um, so I hope you lo- looking use good. Sun. Looking so you're looking good. good though. You're in shape. You're looking good. Um, so good for you. Um, and yeah, let me get this off so everybody can see. You know, so. Um, but yeah, and you should be wearing a mask. I I don't know. I guess you're six feet away from everybody, but um, so anyway, you know, you know, I guess that's our friend Bacon. So he's um, our friend Bacon. So, so um, recently, some of the school districts um, in Wisconsin have started to um, use what I, what I would say, Carl's customer perceived value, saying we've uh, we've installed a new. It's not a filtration system necessarily, mm-hmm. right? It's some type of addendum to our HVAC system, which creates positive ions. And I don't. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm just telling you, kind of the the sales pitch that 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 I see in these things, right? Wait, where it, they're installing <laughs> ionizing um, materials into their... Right. So per the video, the bad air comes in and then it leaves as, as green plus signed air, which attaches to viruses and then takes them out of the system. All so, right. So, of course, like I'm looking at this a little bit skeptical being in the school safety industry for a number of years and then also being a school administrator for for years and saying it's not that easy right <laughs> this is and the one school was eight hundred thousand square feet including like their performing arts center and their their gymnasium and stuff and it was built like in 1960 oh, like there's no way in hell like this is doing so they're basically marking this as saying we have increased our virus safety by this measure. And again, like if I were to challenge that, I don't want to be sued, right? So I'm not going to name the district. Yeah, but if I were if I were to objectively challenge that, they could say, well, this does increase whatever, you know, kind of like bollards. Bollards would stop a car, likely. I'm like, okay, they would, but that's not so so but but as you said, it's how much air is being exchanged. If it was this easy, like Everybody would be doing this. We would be marketing new air filters for our homes, some type of UV addendum to our furnaces, and it's not happening. So help me to understand, like, you know, how much airflow has to be changed out every minute, every hour to really make this effective. Negative air pressure that was mentioned before, I think, by Bacon or Mictibus. I'm going to ask the dumb question of the day because I'm not a smart man. Is this air being recirculated? Yeah, so I don't know that, right? And I don't think when they presented it, they didn't have it in their presentation. But I would say from my my awareness of school systems, right, school systems would blend interior air with exterior air because schools are built to be cost effective. And and also in Wisconsin, you don't want to push all of your hot air in winter out into the environment and have to reheat new, you know, incoming yeah. air. So, so right, it's going to be a blend. That's my, that's my big question. So... If, if I understand HVAC properly, and I'm not an HVAC guy, if you are drawing in outside air and you are then 
going to somehow ionize it in some way. Okay. And then you're going to heat it and humidify it. Don't even get into the whole process of the water and the safety of that and what's going on. And then you're going to push it out and then it's going to be exhausted and you're going to pull it out and 40% of your air goes back to atmosphere. Right. And another 60% gets pulled in, which gets ionized. This isn't keeping anybody safe. It's better than a sealed unit. It's better than constantly recirculated air. Right. But what's the cost here? No, right. And I, and I think part of that is what's the cost? And then it becomes customer perceived value. We're doing this. The neighboring district isn't. So um, also, you know, this makes us more appealing to parents, right, who are considering where to send their students in an age of open enrollment. Hey, we have this extra layer, which, you know, is is misrepresented in these videos, which I've seen, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. the videos make it look like the air comes in, it magically all comes out, you know, completely sanitized and plus has these additional powers to, to find anything that's that's existing in the air and also sanitize it. But, um, well, I, yeah. So I want to get to this question. Uh, Bullrush had uh, it. And I don't know, Carl, if you're going to answer this one or not, but he said, ask Carl why he thinks doctors are not telling the public this stuff. Uh, Bullrush, I think that what they're doing is they're trying to tell them this stuff. And at the exact same time, they are not able to go beyond what the controls are. Okay. So, a phys and we've already seen that there's been a number of physicians that have said, this is what I think is going on based on my experience and my intelligence and my research. And they're being told, sit down and shut up. Or they're being called quacks or they're being called whatever. And the answer is that because they're disturbing what David said is the customer perceived value. What's going on here is they're saying this doesn't make me feel good. It doesn't make me feel safe. And because when you're talking about feeling about this or feeling about that or worried about my kids or worried about it, you're not providing a critical thinking experience. You're not doing some research. You're not doing anything else. And you're not going to turn around and say to the school administrator, right. yeah, I can't do that because the school administrator is going to say, but the rules say you have to, but are the rules wrong? And there's no way you can buck that or else they're going to say to your kid, you can't come in the school or you can't come in the grocery store or you can't come in the whatever because you're critically questioning the effectiveness of the regulation that's being poured down on you. Right. And, you don't have an opt out. The only opt out you really have is don't go in. Don't put your kid in school. Don't buy that. Don't go here. Use this other alternative. Instead of being able to go, I disagree. I want to just go buy a gallon of milk. Right. Wow. Or I just want to send my kid into school and I want them to get a good education. Or I just want to go over here and I want to do this. Okay. 
the 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 concept of the individual's choice between the regulations has always been quite of a fight. You know, you know, this this becomes and Bull Rush is probably gonna throw himself up on the wall. This becomes the no shirt, no shoes, no service approach. Oh, right. 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 At some point in time, you have to draw a little bit of a line and say, you know, you 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 can't just walk in barefoot to the store. That's not gonna work out right. And at the other end of it is if you don't gown up in your garage to come and buy a gallon of milk, don't come in here. So how you're in the so, middle is the right answer. So I just saw that what Quantum Airlines um, has issued a statement indicating for international travel, it will require proof of COVID uh, vaccination. Um, as you well, said, I, I, don't fly that airline. Right. I can read the answer. Well, so, say you shouldn't have to take a pill or get a shot to get on a car. Or well, a what, car. If, what if what if the cascade effect just gets this way? What if it is social proof where one one company or you know they're saying, well, if they're doing it, you know, if we don't do it, then we're going to lose business to them, or or I guess. Um, uh, you know, what? where do you see this this going? And again, maybe back to your safety. Is there anything in your background where there was something that came out of a safety, a significant, you know, alteration to safety practices and and how that was implemented or people that didn't implement it? Um, you know, and, you know, historically, I guess, um, is, is there anything you can cite of saying, yeah, back when this happened, back when like bloodborne pathogens hit, it was really hard to get people to, you know, kind of uh, get on board with, you know, having to use the gloves and use all of these procedures. And this is how we did it. Like any, anything like that. Of I, I, I can't because that's very individual. Okay. You have individuals who will wear their safety glasses. They will wear their gloves. And I have met individuals a number of times. I walk into a laboratory and they're wearing shorts and a t-shirt, no lab thing and open toed sandals. Okay. It's very individual, <laughs> right. okay, and you, and you got to constantly push on them. I can tell you in my experience that um, after nine eleven hit, right? Yeah, uh, the university I was working for was asking everybody to sign the Patriot Two Act. Yeah, tell me about that. Okay. So what happened was that they had said, you know, my boss, who was the dean of the medical school, called me in. And he said, you have to find all of our researchers and you have to have them sign this document. And I read the document and the document pretty much said, I'm not working with castor bean oil or this or that or anything else. Right. And I looked at him and I said, why are they being considered guilty before they're considered innocent? You know, right. if you are, I would much rather have seen a document that said, I am working with these materials, right? And therefore, we should have a conversation, but not, I'm not working with these materials. And and that was very, very difficult. And I had to, you know, under duress, go and have all these people sign this, okay? At, at some point in time, there has to be a, a point where you get the ability to make a choice for yourself or you don't have to certify that you are or aren't doing something. I mean, after all, 
if you're going to be, you know, a free researcher or a free citizen or a free whatever, you shouldn't have to prove the contrary. Why do I have to go and get a shot, which I don't trust, I don't know, I don't need else, to go buy milk? That kind of goes against everything we've ever been taught. The answer is, if you choose to get it, that's a good thing. By all means, help yourself. But if you choose not to, you shouldn't be restricted from doing that. And the other end is, you know, what happens with children? You go to school, they have to get the MMR vaccine, right? Right, right. And this is this is kind of sensible because things like measles, mumps, rubella, you know, these have an R transmission value, which is really high. Five, right. six, seven. Okay, that kind of makes sense. But like we're not locking our children in boxes every spring and fall because of hand, foot, mouth and disease. No, you're absolutely right. Okay. Because the R transmission value is really low. It's like less than one. So we have to figure out where that line needs to be drawn. You know, again, I keep saying the same thing over and over. If I had an opportunity, the one disease I would pull off this place, is, uh, this whole planet is C. diff. Okay. Okay. Because it just has a very high R transmission value. And once you get it, you can't get rid of it. Oh, wow. You just wow. kind of got to keep it, keep it down. It's not so good. But things with a very low R transmission value, influenza is a good example, common cold. Uh, um, oh, my gosh. Um, hand, foot, and mouth, like I said. We we shouldn't be just wrapping our heads in pillowcases and hoping for the best. So you know, you know, Carl, when you're talking about this, I wrote an article about um, MRSA, and oh, I'm going to see if I if I can find it. So this was published in um, Crisis Response Journal. Um, MRSA, so just so you know. So evil. so yeah. So this was here Crisis Response. Let me see if I've got a. Um, if I could find where the hell this article is, but anyway, so I, I wrote this article in crisis response here, bullets or bacterium, August of 2019. Um, all right. So God, what the hell's going on here? Um, here we go. There we go. Here in the North star recording studio, which is going to go through a massive upgrade in the off season. I'm going to bring this article up um, here in the share screen. So if this was, this was in 2000, August 17th, 2019. I wrote this for crisis response journal. So I'm going to share a screen. So there we go. There it is. Um, so it was bullets or bacterium in pursuit of the forgotten school intruder. Basically at this time I was just saying, Hey, you know, as we as we spend billions of dollars on school assailant, you know, anti measures, right? You know, of 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 uh, you know, bulletproof windows and and all this stuff. By the way, by the way, all of these schools that put in these bullet resistive, um, you know, window coverings, they've had to fatigue those in order to have proper air ventilation in their schools. So mm -hmm. schools around me that accepted grants. 
to basically take all of their windows and secure them. You couldn't open the windows. They had this window film on them and it was permanently sealed. They've had to um, go in and modify that so they could open the windows to increase airflow in buildings. So anyway, just as, as a matter of like pissing dents above it, pissing money down a drain hole. I don't, I don't know the exact thing, but so like your exterior windows, when you put these films on, the, the windows cannot be opened. Um, that's part of this 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 whole process as these windows are permanently permanent permanently closed. Um, but so anyway, so I wrote this article. Um, this was in um, Crisis Response Journal, which is a terrific journal, by the way. Um, but um, bullets versus bacteria. But I got in here, and I'm going to go down a little bit. It was in 2011. Researchers at UC Davis found that a number of children hospitalized um, had this superbug of MRSA, as you indicated, you know, MRSA, which basically is uh, to give people an idea, kind of like a flesh eating bacteria, right? So this was showing up in schools. This was showing up in weight, weight rooms, weightlifting rooms. Um, it was showing up in, you know, kindergarten areas, you know, uh, the carpet square areas. It was really, you know, gruesome stuff. It was hard to treat this. It would, it, it would eat holes in your body all the way down to the bone. So it was um, on September 18th, 2014, President Obama issued an executive order where there was supposed to be this MRSA database put together for, you know, all cases of MRSA. Mm-hmm. Well, in a, in a short, the thing, it never happened, right? This database never got put together and MRSA is still out there. And um, some schools, for example, this is customer perceived value, uh, would buy these $100,000 germ zapping robots called Gronks. <laughs> and they would go around and they would shoot this high frequency uv light in rooms so you'd, you know, of course the kids would be out of the rooms and basically this was they, they sold 350 of these things to um schools and hospitals by the way like they've gone through the roof right now in sales with mm-hmm. these things um but the question is like okay like that gives you a moment in time when you're improving a situation but how ongoing um is your is is your prevention of MRSA but I think, you know, this is something too, like there was this supposed to be this database. We're supposed to get more information, what's happening in schools. Nothing happened. As of 2019, there had been no database created. So, you know, so so we get into these things and, you know, I, I guess I also look at like who's tracking, you know, in your perception, how would you, as again, as someone who tracks safety in hazmat, biomet, radmat situations, um, how do we know of schools, if if meat plants, if if any of these businesses are decreasing exposure to COVID, right? Or they're becoming safer through their practices. How how do how do we know? How should they measure that? Well, there is no measure. That's the problem. Okay. You know, remember, this is Kroger's law. They, you know, any virus in the world you should be able to isolate. And you should be able to collect and 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 uh, you know uh, put together so that you can look at it. They can't right. do this with COVID, which makes no sense. Any other virus, you can take influenza and you can pellet it down, and you can study it, and you can have a very concentrated sample. But this one, you can't. So it's somehow some kind of weird virus that. Doesn't play by the rules. Well, Mother Nature doesn't like that. You you have to be able to do this. The, 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 you don't have a a baseline, which is the most important thing you need to have. You don't know what 
it was before. Right. You don't know what it is today. Absolutely. You can't it tomorrow, and so you can't do mathematics on it to find out what's going on. So what do they do? They use feel-good items, right, that are maybe, you know, nondescript. When, when you're doing medicine, right, you have signs and symptoms, okay? And there are nondescript signs and symptoms. So when you say you have a fever, that's nondescript. So the answer is in the world of COVID, let's take your temperature with a thermometer, which is oddly made in China. <laughs> right. And, and if your temperature shows up above a certain thing, that's a, but that's a nondescript sign. Because my question is, that's great. Did you just come out of the gym? Did, were, were you working out at home? Um, you know, did you have a B vitamin? You're having a niacin reaction. I, I can't answer those questions. Right. So right. there's no baseline based for us to measure this. There's no, there is no rapid test. It's not like E. coli where you could take a rapid test, grab it, smear it on something, wait two minutes and go, oh yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Not, not so good. Which is what they use in meat packing plants and everything else. Right. Okay. So I think this question gets to, or this gets to a question from Bacon. He's asking you, Carl. He said, you know, and you can see it on the screen, if virus is so super transmissible, then um, the need for masks and social distancing and plexiglass and sanitizer everywhere. Why the hell is the test so damn invasive? And I've kind of questioned this too of like, you know, so they're telling people in my area, for example, go to the Alliance Energy Center and you can get tested for COVID. Mm -hmm. and I'm like, okay, you know, and people are waiting, you know, three, four hours. I'm like, but what is the value of being tested? Like if you find out yes or no, and then there's this delay, right, in, in getting the results. But what what exactly does this tell you? Because I've also talked to people who work in the city sanitation and say at the sewer plants, they're able to identify pretty accurately, um, you know, the, 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 um, it, I, I guess the rate of COVID coming in in their sewage and they have different formulas where they can identify how much of okay. their population has been infected. I'm like, well, that seems pretty solid. Like that to me seems like pretty good science, but yet if I'm sitting in a car and I'm waiting three hours to get tested and I get tested and I'm negative. But what if in the last 24 hours now I've come across someone who's positive and now I'm positive? I mean, how frequently does the typical normal person need to be tested? And and, and like as as Bacon is saying here, you know, we have all of these things. If we have to do all of these, why is this so why is the test so invasive? Why yeah. isn't it something that can be picked up through a saliva sample or breath or? Um, I, I don't know that answer because I'm not that good. I will say that they use a lot of nasal swabbing, which does make sense. Okay. I will also say that the test that they're using is a PCR VE test. Okay. And what that means is that they're taking your sample and they're taking your DNA and they're they're extracting it, right? It doesn't take long to do. And then what they're doing is they're taking what they think is COVID and they're they're taking a section of it, just a little section of RNA, DNA, and they're putting a fluorescent dye on the end of it. Okay. That's how PCR works. So what they do is they put it in a machine and they heat it up and they bring it down. They heat it up 
and they bring it down. And every time it heats up, the material separates, and every time it comes back, it comes together. So when you put all these pieces in, which are markers, and then they bond to the DNA, you spin the DNA down, and then you put it in a fluorotometer. And then the brighter the fluorotometer, the you know the higher the, the the amount you have. Now here's the problem. Okay, if you don't know what you're measuring, we can do anything. So if I take a chimpanzee and I take a random section of DNA and I chop it off and I put a marker on it, then I take Dave, I take your DNA and I put it in and I do it over and over and over again. Sure. Lights up like a Christmas tree. And why does that happen? Because our DNA and a chimpanzee's DNA are very close to one another. But we're not being specific at what we're identifying. Therefore, Dave's a chimpanzee. No, wait, that doesn't work. That doesn't happen. Yeah. There's no, you have to have a very specific identifiable marker, you know, a very specific pattern that you can identify on. If you just grab it and go, this is COVID, but remember, they can't quite get a solid, you know, piece of this. They, they can't isolate it. So how do you know? And then they just go, this is our best guess. And that this is what they run. Well, this is why an avocado tested positive. This is why... That fellow in Ohio that really happened on Monday, and then he tested negative the, the same afternoon because it's not specific enough. It really can't identify what it is. Okay, this is why, uh, and I'm, I'm now I'm going to get really geeky. This is why uh, uh, J. Craig Ventner did so well with the shotgun project. Okay, because he had very specific markers. He was able to cut up his DNA. He was able to do all these and find these pieces and then reassemble because he was using very specific components. If you're not using specific components or you don't have enough specific components, meaning no disrespect, you're shooting in the dark. So, so didn't avocado actually test positive for COVID? <laughs> yes, that, that did happen. An they tested an avocado. It came back positive. Goddamn avocados! You know, you know, I don't like avocados, so I'm not really you know, crying about it. But Holy you get shit. the idea. It's, it when, is, and and it has to do with non-specific testing. I'm going to share a screen here. Yeah, this is over from Reuters, um, or Reuters, whatever. But goat and pawpaw, and a pawpaw is a fruit in like Pennsylvania. I have a friend who hikes all the time and harvests those off of trees. Test positive for COVID in in Tanzania. So, in Tanzania. Jesus, unreal, unreal. Well, this is this is why I start to like you know I start to lose hair up here. It's because if the test was very specific and very you know very concentrated, it would be a lot easier to say okay it is. But when right. the test is non-specific, or it's based on very loose information, ultimately you're taking a guess. Right. And if you're taking a guess, why are we being asked to do weird behaviors or lock yourself in a house or do it based on a guess? 
Well, yeah, that's uh, no, no, you're right. I mean, I think the, the imprecision on this is, is, um, I don't know. I've used the word alarming, but to me it is alarming. Um, and also, you know, so I look at this, so I, I taught um, superintendents this fall. I teach a superintendent legal class for school, first year superintendents, new soups. And uh, they were talking about, you know, students coming back to play football and, and you know, volleyball and stuff like that and whatever. Um, and, and as long as they had whatever threshold of, you know, coronavirus positive, they would continue playing. And I said, but, but like, are you testing players daily or like every few days or how does this work? And mm-hmm. it was like, well, if they test positive, well, that means that they've, you know, these are high school kids, right? So the district isn't paying to test these kids every two, three days when, you know, we can barely manage this at an NFL, NBA, yeah. professional sports level. So I'm like, how is this actually looking in your districts? I'm like, not to like throw you under the bus or a curveball. Like, just tell me how this looks. Well, you know, if, if they were feeling ill and they went to the doctor and they got tested, well, that's a lot different than saying we're going to test all of the players on the football team every right. three days. Like that's a different deal there. Um, so, so we've got to really understand this. And, and, um, and I, and I, you know, so when I look at these things and people are saying, yeah, we're running this we, you know, we've only had one person, you know, test or whatever. I'm like, that's not really matching the information that I need. I mean, the information is we're going to run this sport and we're going to test every whatever three or five days cycle. And then, and that's not happening. You don't have the money for that. You don't have the resources for that. And so, um, and a lot of people are are saying if they don't feel well now and super are telling me this, people are being, um, they're reluctant to get tested. They'll just say, I'm going to be home because they don't want to be identified as right. being positive or they don't want the people around them to be um, in quarantine. So, um, so yeah, I, I don't know. I, as you said, I think these systems have multiple fatigue points. And, and I want to get into another, you know, you and I talked about this, <laughs> you know, so, so, um, you know, let's, let's talk about, um, can, can you share the story about when you were, uh, when the fire alarm was activated and you had to go down and deactivate it to kind of, um, uh, to, you know, fatigue the system during a, a, a ceremony, yeah, where when when medical students were identified of where oh, they'd yeah. be going for the fourth year. Okay, I, oh, so yeah. To preface this, I think this is a this is a terrific story of how we we routinely override safety systems um, because of what's going on. It's not convenient to do like a fire drill at this time, for example, and this happens across all safety systems. We just, we, we just make a decision to fatigue the system temporarily. This happened on nine 11. I wrote about it in school of airs, by the way, if you're tuning in school of airs, if you're thinking school safety in America, the most honest book about school and community safety, but um, 400,000 people, they're not 400,000, 400 people stayed at their desk in the twin towers during the attacks after the alarms were sounding and they were saving things to their computers. And the reason you know, one is one is they're not they're not accepting what's happening, right? They're they're not you know accepting chaos, um, and and another one is they're just thinking, oh, the system will someone will override the system. We've had drills right. before, and this will end. 
And, and literally, and we know that because objectively they indicated when these things were saved on servers and stuff like that. Amanda Ripley did many interviews with, with survivors who came out and said, yeah, it's a good thing I got out because I stayed saving these files to my, my thing. But so you had, a, you had this fascinating story you shared with me where the, you, there was a significant event and, and basically you were kind of given the directive of, hey, this fire alarm isn't timely. <laughs> so do something about it, Carl. Tell us about that. Okay. So, okay. When I, when I was managing a medical school, right? In, in medical school, the most important day for a medical student's life is when they have match day. It's when they're going to determine um, who's going to go to where for the residency. Okay. And it's usually a big party and there's families there and we invite a lot of people. It's very, very important because it, you know, they spent so many years studying and now they're going to decide, you know, where they're going to go. If the, the hospital decides where they're going to go or medical school or anything else. So I'm there. We have families. We have catering. We have champagne. It's a very big event. And, you know, I'm standing on tables and taking pictures and helping out and doing all sorts of things. And all of a sudden, the fire alarm goes off. I have 500 people in my building, and now i got to figure out what I'm going to do. So I go running. Down, my boss looks at me. He goes, fix it. Wow. Running down the stairs. I want to know if it's real or not, because I need to know if I'm going to meet people out of the room. Um, police go, we don't know. We're still trying to figure this out. And then what they do is I see one of our EHS people running down the hall like this. Oh, my God, there's a fire. What's going on? I pulled a fire alarm. Yeah, I noticed. I got that. What's going on? And she says to me, I smelled smoke. Well, unfortunately, the building next to us was doing autoclaving of biological stuff. It's a normal scent. She's not in the building enough to know this. She smells this, thinks it's smoke, pulled the alarm in the middle of the most important day for all of us. Right. They're like, where am I going for fourth? Right. So I have to tell the the police to turn it off, tell the fire department to back off, do all this, run upstairs, talk to the dean, and talk to 500 people and go, hey, everybody, it's all fine. Right. You know, it's all good. Everybody be cool. And, uh, you know, it's just the alarms went off. We're excited, and that's the end of that. Um, Now, what happened at the end of that was – the fire department came out. We, ha- I had to run back downstairs. I had to have them clear the building. The fire department had to come into the room with axes and hats and everything else and go, yeah, it looks good, and then leave the room. Right, right. <laughs> Before the most important day of these medical students' lives. And, uh, you know, that's what happened. And the, the problem we're having here is that these students – and the families, they're all real nervous. They're really excited. But yet there's a fatigue here. Right. The fatigue is, why am I answering a fire alarm now? Is it real? What am I doing? Right. Right. And and, and what if what if there had been more to it, Carl? I mean, what if there was something actually that was, was authentic that was kind of being just over overridden? Um, during this time. Hang on a second, would you? Yeah. Don't hang up. Oh my god. All right. Looks like a looks like a fire alarm for Carl. So I am going to uh to do this and, and just a shout out. We have um we have Kat from Paranormal Heart Podcast in the show. Um Kat from Canada. Um 
does a terrific show on investigating um, paranormal and um, extra-worldly, um, I, I guess, phenomena. It's really a terrific show. It's on Podbean, but check it out, Paranormal Heart Podcast. And, of course, Bacon Maldito is in the house, our good friend Bacon Maldito. Origins of Inglewood, California, our good friend Bacon. Thank you so much for being in the show. Sass, too many. Um, one from uh, the Tenderloin in um, our our friend over there in San Francisco. So, so yeah, a few things, um, you know, as I'm thinking about this, so I'm really, you know, I'm just really skeptical of this phone app for COVID-19, which we talked about earlier in the show with Carl, um, you know, Bluetooth, I'm, if you have I'm it on. Sorry, it came back. Bull Rush came to my door. He wanted to sell me a razor. I don't Whoa. know. You should buy it. I did. You should. <laughs> All right, let me get you back on 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 the square here. So um so so yeah. So Bacon wrote, you know, sorry, um this is an inconvenient time for me. Can you reschedule the uh, catastrophe, please? Absolutely. Tell tell Bacon that's fine, we can cater it. It's fine. <laughs> so what do you what do you think? I mean, what's your feeling about that? You know, thinking back, do you think people should have been evacuated? from the billing because typically you'd evacuate or is it like, okay. And this, you know, I, I investigated, I determined, but yet that sends a message to people almost that, okay, there's going to be this third party person who will investigate and then tell us if it's real that we yeah. should actually exit. That, that, that is, we're taught from when we're very small, when you hear the bell ring, go to the left side to line up on the wall and walk away. Right. When you become an adult, it becomes a little bit different, okay? Because you're always asking, is this real or is this not? And, Dave, you mentioned this um, in our conversation, okay? When you have a building like I used to, which had a lot of false alarms because the system was old, right? okay, people just, they start to hear that bell, and instead of going to the, I'm going to get up, I'm going to leave, I'm going to hang up the phone, I'm going to do whatever, they just go, Oh God, not again! You oh know? right, yeah. They, 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 young they get, man, get angry. Get right here. He's he's correct. In educational facilities, you have to run a fire drill once a month. Yes. Okay. Yes. You know, so you know when the students start to see this, they 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 get into that sleepy pattern. Okay, the bell rang. I'll get up. I'll do this. Okay. And when you work in a corporate environment, it'd be wonderful if you could actually get people to get up. Oh, right, right. That's, you know, that's the thing when I was reading um, about 9-11, the Twin Towers, was there were a fair amount of people who didn't evacuate because in previous drills, they had not been required to actually go into the stairwells and things like that. So they just... Or at least they, get corridor just right, something. right they hadn't gotten up you know uh, you know up from their cubicle or whatever so um and and so as you you indicated you know again um once you start making these exceptions if you do it one time people will think it well it'll happen again and now you add this extra layer into things right of Okay, the alarm went off, but let's not do anything until someone actually verifies. Oh, it wasn't a bad sensor because it's an old building, and we've been told that before. Mm -hmm. And um, 
Yeah. So, you know, I go back, um, uh, of course, to uh, December 1st, was it 1958, the Our Lady of Angels um, school fire in Chicago at the end of the day, like literally, I think 220, um, this fire started in the basement, worked its way up. 92 students died, three, three nuns. And um, people knew about the fire, right? Nuns, teachers knew that this fire was happening. They saw smoke, but they couldn't find the principal or the superior nun to make the call to pull a mm-hmm. fire alarm and evacuate. So they wasted a, a lot of time and, and you know, um, 95 people died. So the question I always come back is who has discretion, right? Who has discretion to make these calls, to pull these fire alarms and to say, nope, we're getting out of here. And it's interesting because when I, when I ask those questions at a school level of saying, does the second grade teacher have discretion to activate the fire alarm? And the second grade teacher would be like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't, I mean, we've never covered this. Like I, and most times when they're asked these questions, the answer is I would contact an administrator and decide right. what I should do. Or, or like fire, yeah. fire extinguishers in the hallway. Like when is somebody authorized to grab a fire extinguisher and try to contain a fire? Well, nobody that, has an answer to that. that. Nobody. That one I can answer. Okay. Because in the facility I was in, everybody had to take fire extinguisher training. And we took them out to the parking lot and we taught them how to use it. Yeah. Okay. Especially our fire monitors, our fire wardens. Those who had to show up, everybody else was voluntary. Okay. Um, now, who could pull the fire alarm? The answer always came back to us as anyone who smelled smoke or saw flames was obligated to go and warn the rest of us. If you didn't smell smoke or see flames, now you should speak to somebody about it, specifically our public safety, and let them investigate. Okay. Okay. But the object behind it was if you directly observe an event, you're obligated to let everyone know of the event. Okay. And that was fine. And that was that was great. Except for the one time I just told you about where the person didn't see smoke, didn't see flames, and panicked and just pulled the alarm and had me stand on tables for 500 people and go, sorry. Right. Didn't mean it. You know, please enjoy your lasagna and champagne. I apologize. You know, it was very, very, you know, it was embarrassing. It's a, it's a crazy story. I mean, to, to think about that, right. It, it, and the fact that you did a great job of spinning it coming back saying, yeah, we're so excited. And the building is excited, you know, of, of, well, uh, I had no around. choice because the Dean would have had <laughs> my head, <laughs> you know, I got to do but, Oh man. I mean, there are so many times. Yeah. I, I see systems, right. That have been fatigued. I had Nick Schuler on the show, Nick Schuler on the show yep. um, earlier this year. Nick was um, a student at Todd Beamer high school, in Washington State. And Todd Beamer High School, um, Todd Beamer was on, what was it, Flight 93, the, you know, the Let's Roll. And and so this high school was built in, I don't know, you know, the early 2000s with, you know, pretty much every security feature you could think of and just really high tech. And Nick talked about how, yeah, you know, at the start of the school year, they'd make everybody go through the doors with metal detectors and they would wand you and the stuff like that. And he said, two, three months in, 
you could go through any door. Nobody was checking you. <laughs> you know, you could go out uh, at any time. There was like as woods in the background, you know, students would be sneaking off to this woods and they'd be coming back. And, and he said, you know, it was just one of these things that, of course, you know, a couple months in, they're like, yeah, it just takes too long to get people in. So just like open the doors and, um, right. But I, I wanted to, um, I also want to want to get your take on something that I I've seen and I might draw some heat for this. And, and I don't mean this to be like in a negative, um, negative connotation, uh, but okay. So I did some research again on this today. Uh, you know, I, I have a background as trained as a, a firefighter and, and I'm, you know, very aware of, um, for example, 10 years ago, um, there were some changes with um, firefighting apparatus that they needed to have chevrons on the back for visibility right. on roads because of collisions. But anyway, um, you know, you and I were talking about this and we recently had one of our local police vehicles um, done up in a paint scheme or they call it, I, I don't know exactly what it is, um, but basically, so it's, it has all of these um, multicolored puzzle pieces for autism awareness. So half of this vehicle is done up in these, these, these puzzle pieces and it still has the, the lights and siren and logos, you know, please. But, but I'm looking at this thing. This doesn't sit well with me from the standpoint of um, police, fire, EMS, emergency vehicles have to represent in a way that are universally recognizable. And then the other part is like, we know that certain colors in vehicles, we know that lime is the most, um, visible um, emergency vehicle. Like if you have a line fire truck and, and, and so you have this 25 foot multi-ton hard to maneuver vehicle coming down your road. We want this to stand out and be very visible and, 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 and interact with your senses. But anyway, I'm looking at, I'm looking at this new vehicle that our, that our town bought and, and they're doing this for autism awareness. At first I'm kind of questioning, why is this autism awareness and not, other awarenesses like how did autism awareness get to be this new vehicle wrap where it's done up in this this design of half the vehicle looks like multicolored puzzle pieces but right. but anyway beyond that i'm like that doesn't look like a emergency vehicle to me like when i'm looking at it it looks like something from a, the radio station or something from a, a specialty delivery company and i'm like that to me doesn't call out that that's an emergency vehicle if that were following me with its lights on, I'd have questions. If I needed help and that was parked close by, I'm not sure I would immediately go to it because it doesn't signify to me that it's an emergency vehicle. So I think there's this, this, this side of politics and, and kind of social awareness, which is overcome and it's compromising why these vehicles are designed that the way, you know, the way that they are. And I remember again in, in firefighting back 10 years ago, um, you know, it was it was a a mandate. You had to have the Chevron design on the back of the vehicles to decrease the likelihood of you know right. of collision and all of this. And it's like again, we're fatiguing these to send a message of okay, we are a autism aware um, police force. Now again, I get this. I'm not against this. I'm so in support of this. But why do we take a vehicle and modify it to the extent when? I'm looking at this saying, I don't know what that is. And to me, this should stand out immediately if this is an emergency vehicle. It should be uniform. Mm -hmm. And 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 so I want to get your take on on that because um 
it, it's unsettling to me because uh, I, again, <laughs> I, you know, the, the fire departments, it was so, you're, you're held to such high standards rigorous standards on the color patterns, the code three on a vehicle. And, right. and we talked about this too. Like I'll right. get into it later. All about, hazmat trucks were white. Shit, but yeah. So, so give me your thought on why this might be happening, what the risks are, what you see on this, your thoughts. Well, very cold. What you're saying, I can say this, and that is that um, making your first responder vehicles look like a NASCAR car, it might feel cool and groovy, but it isn't cool and groovy. All right. If you don't know that's a police car, as you said, you, you're not sure you can go there for help. If your fire truck doesn't look like a fire truck, are you going to pay attention to it? Okay. My thinking is that when you decide to do that type of thing, it should be very special, okay? There are, you know, the, every school has the dare car, right? Right, right. And, and But how many times has anybody been pulled over by the dare car? Right. Okay. There, there's a reason to have that type of awareness to a, a product or an idea. And at the same time, when you go out into the larger world, we should be expecting that our emergency vehicles look the same. I have never seen an emergency vehicle that was not either white, black, or yellow. Right. Okay. We look for those. We look for those colors. We understand what that means. And so when you see a cop car coming with, you know, red and blue lights, whether it be white or black or yellow, you know to pull over. And you let that car go through. Okay. I, I think that what it does is it diminishes the effectiveness and the message that these are first responders and that these people are here to keep us safe as a primary responsibility. Start painting the cars purple or you start wrapping them in puzzle pieces or anything else. What you're really saying is, this feels good, but it's not my primary job. Right. And the answer should be, I, you know, if I get in a car accident, I really don't care if the cop car shows up with 18 different logos from all the places in my town to spot right. for them. I don't care. I want the cop to show up and be professional, courteous, and right. do the cops two jobs that they have to do. Right. Okay. Yeah. I think it diminishes their message and I think it diminishes their value. I agree. I agree. I, you know, it, and, and this isn't about marketing, right? I mean, that was the big thing maybe 10 years ago when I was a school administrator. It's like, you know, will schools sell advertising on the side of buses? Like, yeah, it's our local I mean, taco town. And, and that really never kind of happened. But to me, this, this has a different feel because this is a, 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 a selection of a specific um, group or cause that we are going to amplify um, by representing it on this vehicle. Big question and, right here. I'm going to ask the big question right here and interrupt you. What happens to all the other causes? Right. Okay. So are they going to suddenly need a piece of the puzzle or a piece of the pie? 
Yeah. I mean, are we going to have our cancer, you know, our, our cancer fire truck and, you know, our other municipal vehicles. And again, not to disparage any of those. They're, they're equally important. I'm saying though, when you do this, you're interfering with a, a, a recognizable um, commonality of these vehicles, which they're designed to have. If you go back into the studies of designing fire engines and police, and I mean, unless they're undercover, for example, but I mean, they are very overtly designed and tested to have people identify what they are as soon as possible. And when you start to confuse that, I, I just see that as eroding the safety features of these vehicles. Um, okay. uh, and, and to me, that's a huge issue. I, I, can't, I can't square that in my mind. Um, it, it just doesn't sit well with me. I think the problem is that I think you're right. It, it, it does chip away at the safety because it is, is this a cop? Is this a mock-up car? Is it whatever? The thing that makes me crazy is that when you do this, it erodes their professionalism. It says, I'm a cop, but it's not really a cop car. It's a fire truck, but it's not really a fire truck. You know, when you have an emergency from a first responder, especially I'll, I'll talk from hazmat from my experience. Yes. Yeah. We wouldn't, we wouldn't paint the truck purple and yellow. It would be a big white <laughs> truck. Right. And it would show up and we would hop out of the truck and go find the police. And they would go, oh, these weirdos. Hang on a sec. And they would be, but we wouldn't have been taken professionally or seriously. You know, maybe the university logo on the side of the truck. Okay. Right. right. But we wouldn't be taken professionally or seriously if we looked like a clown car. No, no offense intended. Right. However, you know, you know, we're taught that these are professional people. And they're going to act in a professional manner. And then you pull up in a car with 18 different stickers and it's purple and green and yellow and striped. Right. That erodes your confidence in the person getting out of the car. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I, and I know it's not a popular position. Um, and again, it's, it's not uh, to object to what it represents. But I believe that you're compromising. And I think more now than ever, you need to have a uniform, uh, recognizable, um, you know, rescue force, police force. You don't want to be, um, you know, convoluting that in, in people's minds. And also, for example, for students with autism, I worked with as a special education director, this this is not in alignment with how we would educate students with disabilities. We would educate them of, okay, recognizing this is a first responder, this is a firefighter, this is an emergency vehicle, which I, I, I did firsthand. And now to 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 alter that is 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 actually not in the best interest of the people that I it's trying to to serve in this thing too of like bring awareness well i think people do have awareness i i i again i i struggle with why we why we fatigue these systems um and i'll go back i mean like 
so many studies like lime green. We just know lime green is the most recognizable color, um, especially for large multi-ton moving, you know, pumper trucks or tankers or, or, and it's not, it's not disputable. I mean, we objectively know that hundreds of thousands of people over time, if, you know, images coming on uh, in, in front of them, which she recognized first. And so, so I think there is a point where the, this whole politics gets into compromise. As you said, you know, if you were to arrive in hazmat <laughs> and you're arriving in, in some vehicle, it doesn't seem like it's a hazmat vehicle. It, it, there'd be kind of like this, well, what's the, what's the deal here? There has to be this portrayal from the vehicle. And, and then I just, I also see like, I, I, I would want the visibility of, of these things. Um, I, I don't know. Um, I have a hard time. I have a hard time with that. So, yeah, you know, I appreciate you chiming in on that because I, 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 uh, have, I have no problem with bringing awareness to the public or the students. If you want to put a car wrap out, I think that's great. Doesn't cost a lot. And it, it brings awareness to the people that are supposed to keep us safe. When the people are supposed to keep us safe are driving around things that look like clown cars, it's it's hard to take them seriously. It's hard to say I have confidence. Yeah. You know, you know so you know, I, I, I realize that there are some police vehicles that are built shadow, you know. They're they're darker, they're hard to see, and oh, okay, I get the, the point behind that. However, you know, again, as I said it before, the dare car shouldn't be pulling you over for a traffic stop. That's right. not purpose. It, it's built to build. It's built to bring awareness, not built to bring safety. So this this kind of segues into to another point of, you know. You and I were talking about when does safety start and end? Um, it, it, you know, it is, um, you know, people have more in, in kind of this progressive, um, you know, safety measures put into place. And at what point do people, th does that end and people have to have a responsibility and capability to assess the situation in context and make a decision? versus we get so scripted into a standard operating procedure that, you know, we, we almost take that away from people. But of course, we know chaos doesn't scale in a linear fashion. People have to be able to assess what happens in chaos and adjust to it. Um, so so what, what, what's your what's your perception on on that? If you're if you're you know, you had a classroom right now of, 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 you know, people interested in safety, you know, new safety coordinators. And, and you're like, okay, let's have a discussion of where does safety end and where does, you know, safety, you know, personal judgment and, and action in a situation begin. I, I, I guess there's still safety in that, but I mean like prescribed. Okay. okay. Got to think about that for a second. Um, I, I would think that if I were talking to people, and I would say a standard operating procedure is for a, a routine procedure. Things that you're going to do every day. Empty this, perform that. You know, routine tasks, which I think is the right answer. Your personal safety is when things go outside of your task. 
what happens when you are moving down the hall? I'm just making this up. And you spill a bottle of phenol. Well, that's not a routine task. Okay. What do I do now? Now we have to think about our personal safety and we have to think about our procedures when something either unexpected or something, um, you know, uncommon occurs. Okay. Okay. Uh, An example would be in the hospital I worked in, if a nurse spilled formalin and she spilled like five drops. You know, she was doing, uh, she was taking a sample, putting it in a bottle. She spilled like five drops. She could clean that up, right? That's normal. We all spill a little something. But now she spills, I don't know, um, half a sample container of formalin. Holy smokes. Yeah, I'm going to say uh, 30 milliliters. This is now uncommon. Let a cat down here just a second. That's all right. buddy. Hey, you know. We'll we'll wait for him to get his cat. Oh, and by the way, Bull Rush, yes, you're right. Green is the most common color observed because it's slightly lower on the spectrum, and therefore you tend to see it more often. You got that right. And we have a cat. Did anybody else have any questions while we're waiting? <laughs> see, I see this is why I put my dogs to bed early. I understand. There he is. All right. I said this is why I put my dogs to bed early, so I get it. The, 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 question, <laughs> the question I was asking that you asked was, what? Right. 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 Okay. Go ahead. You can ask the question again. Let, let's just start over. Okay. So let me, let me go. So, so, you know, we've gotten through, you know, obviously, um, you know, changing the graphics on on vehicles, and and things like that. Um, and I, I, I don't know exactly where I made the the segue, but I, I wanted to get into the the segue of, um, you know, what you've also seen for for politics on influencing safety practices. Okay, um, that's a great question because yeah. we were talking about what I would tell my safety coordinators are teaching them. Yeah. Can- Okay. One of the things in EHS is there's two sides of the coin. One is called compliance-based safety. In other words, these are the rules, these are the regulations, these are whatever happens, and therefore we must comply. And it's our responsibility to comply to the rules. Okay. And when we have to comply to the rules, they don't tell us how to comply to the rules. They just simply tell us that we must comply to the rules. Good point. Okay. Now, the other end of safety is behavior-based safety. And that's when the individuals are performing actions or behaviors that are going to keep them and their colleagues safe. 
Okay. So what you're asking where politics comes in. And the question is, I've, I have not ever seen politics ever interact with behavior-based safety. Okay. I've only seen politics interact in compliance-based safety. Right. We've made a rule. Therefore, you must follow it. Well, how are we going to do that? That's not our problem. Right. How much does it cost? That's not our problem. How are we going to do it? That's not our problem. Here's the drop dead date. Figure it out. Right. And then you have to figure out. How do you figure it out? Do you call a consultant? Do you change your practice? Do you whatever it happens to be? But because you cannot be non-compliant, it becomes the the job of the company or the the facility to have to figure out how to reach upwards to that, uh, to that rule. Okay. And if they can't reach upward to that rule, right. They're going to start asking for a variance. Right. Right. And then when you, and now you have to start begging for a variance and you have to explain why, you know, if it becomes a stormwater issue, well, we can't do that. Why? Well, our roof needs to be replaced. Can we have three more years and then replace the roof? Right. Those types of things. But I have not ever seen a political component ever get down to the individual where the individual says, oh, hey, I got to go to work and I'm going to wear my safety boots. I've only seen politics say you must give every individual you know, Bob Smith safety boots with steel toes, whatever. And you have to replace them and inspect them every so often. Well, how are we going to do that? That's not our problem. Figure it out. Wow. And of course, the company doesn't want to get fined. They don't want a, a, a black mark. They don't want to have an OSHA violation. They don't want an NOV. So they have to somehow figure out how to do this. And sometimes that cuts into the bottom line. What happens when it cuts into the bottom line? Do they let go of staff? What do they let go of? Maybe they buy lower quality gloves. Oh, right, right. Yeah, they start skimping on things in order to reach upward the compliance. And as a result, the question I would ask standing room is, but if we're skimping on all this stuff, is it really keeping us safe? So I brought up um, something I, I shared in my PBS presentation in 2019. This was prior to 2017 in the state of Wisconsin. Um, this was a one-page document you needed to submit if you were a school administrator uh, to confirm, uh, I, I, I guess, to validate that you had performed your safety drills for the year per mm -hmm. state law, number of fire drills, tornado. And first of all, most schools didn't even submit this because there wasn't a consequence if you didn't <laughs> before <laughs> 2000. And, and if you look at it, it was a, it was the date of the drill. It was the time, um, evacuation time, number of students, adult. I mean, these are all kind of just guessed and then evacuation Joel remarks. I mean, no one, nobody came into this with a, with, um, what I would say learning objectives, right? No one was saying we are going to test our PA system to make sure that, um, uh, it's heard in all parts of the billings. Uh, we are not going to, uh, you know, we're not going to ch check our two-way radios. Like that wasn't required. So 
So first of all, a lot of people didn't even you know, submit this. And the second one is if they did it, it was mostly done at the end of the year. Oh yeah, remember when we had those? Check back on the calendar. And, and there were no consequences, no consequences. So the Department of Justice in Wisconsin took this over in 2018 and added some teeth to this, much more rigorous. But even then it was kind of, you know, the first year or two was was pretty substantial. And after that was, it evolved to kind of a compliance um, document. But as you said, right on Carl, right? Is it compliance? Because if, if what you're dealing with is compliance, that's a checklist. And if you can submit this and saying, yeah, we did it. <laughs> They're not going to come on site. They're not going to interview anybody. They're not going to look at your fire alarms. They're not going to look at your, mm-hmm. yeah, your, your stuff. They're never going to visit you. As long as right. you submit the form, you're, you're good in their eyes. And, uh, and so, yeah, this is, this is a good point because um, a ton of this, like, you know, a question I would ask is the school administrator is why, why do, where do you go if there's a tornado drill? Well, we go to this hallway or whatever hallway. I'm like, Okay, but why? Like, like, why was that the designated hallway in this building? Well, I don't know, just because it is. So I would call the um, the county uh, emergency services coordinator or whatever the hell. That was usually, you know, the, the person. And, and they would come in and, and they could uh, objectively look at this. Or you could get your, your um, facility engineer to come in, right? And say, look at our buildings and tell us where the safest places are to be if there would be high winds or, you know, mm-hmm. a tornado. And they would tell you that. And, and a lot of times it wasn't <laughs> where we were actually at. <laughs> nice. So, so it was kind of like, you know, why are we doing these things? And it was, well, it's cause it's always been done. Right. So just, just shut up and go with it. You yeah. know, kind of like yeah. you were saying this categorical, uh, you know, imperative of right. you've got to do it. It's this is how it's been done. Before. There are no problems. Yeah. We, we have to put our PCOs in the hallway. Why? <laughs> Because that's where the stairs are. Right. The stairways on fire. We'll put them in the other hallway. Right. There's not a lot of thought process on all of this. You know, I, and I remember, you know, when I was in a, a manufacturing facility, why do we do this? Why do we go here? And they had more, you know, we had fire engineers that would say to us things like, well, you know what? This space is farthest from the solvents. Okay. Okay. Or this space is the easiest egress from the factory or whatever. That made a lot more sense. It does make sense. Yeah. But in an academic setting, it was like you you put your physically challenged occupants in the hallway. Why? Because that's where the stairs are. Well, where's their buddy? I don't know. Tom took the day off. (laughs) Right. Now what do we do? And then, and there's no penalty if you don't have a backup person to help, whether that person is a temporary PCO or a permanent PCO. Oh, so, that's great. No, you're yeah. right. You're right. This 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 thought of uh, redundancy in substitutes. I mean, in schools we see it a lot. Substitute teachers, substitute staff. Probably not as much in in business, but probably. I mean, it's still probably present in business. Oh yeah, you know. We're short on whatever. So, you know, you need to go over and work into this department today or this setting in this new environment. And um, no, you're absolutely you're absolutely spot on there, Carl, of, of um, you know, I, t- I talk about the failure of induction processes and, okay. and I talk about this in legal classes with superintendents. I, it's one of my my three primary you know, topics we go over best interest, who has discretion and have you overtly 
inform them that they have discretion, for example, pull the alarm. And the other one is induction. When new people come into your building, whether they be staff, students, parents, whatever, how do they know, how are they informed about your safety procedures? Um, and for example, you know, is it, is it something where you're having people wear an identification if they're a volunteer? I'm a volunteer. So then somebody else sees, oh, they have the, the volunteer in the yellow. Like I will go to them and, and you know, during a safety situation right, and make right. sure you get to a safe place. But, but people, I mean, those are three things I deal with. And, and, and it's just like, people are like, oh man, we never thought about induction. I'm like, well, 20% of your staff and students change through the year. <laughs> like right. you don't yeah. have an induction process. That, um, that, that's much easier in a laboratory setting because in a laboratory setting, whether it be basic or clinical, before you can go in the lab, you have to be trained. You have to be oriented on the facility. You have to be oriented on laboratory safety plan. And then you have a specific laboratory safety plan for each laboratory because each one can be different. When oh, you right. start talking about regular staff and they come in, you know, the only thing you can really do is kind of say, okay, once a month, we're all going to go into the conference room. We're going to have a talk. And if you're new, please go to the conference room. Mm-hmm. And as you just said, what's the penalty if you don't show up to the conference room? Oh, right. There is none. So, you know, it becomes, you know, incumbent on, you know, the, the supervisor to say this is important to do. This is very easy in things like operations because they'll just go get in the room and there's no argument. But secretarial staff or administrative staff, you know, unless your safety person is going door to door and, you know, bringing them in, it sometimes it doesn't work very well. And that's challenging. You know, in a manufacturing setting, it's easy because they just roll it directly into the concept of, okay, you're being oriented in the facility. You get all the safety stuff and you get all this and that and you, they write your name down. And then in a year you come back for your retraining. Somebody's going to tell you what's going on um, in places where it's more administrative, more commercial and things like it doesn't really happen. You know, this isn't the forklift operator. It has to be trained. This is the secretary. Right. Here's a fire alarm and goes. Sorry, I'm on the phone. Yeah. <laughs> No, no. I mean, and then and then that happens. A but lot. there's no penalty. Nobody's running around and taking ten dollars out of their pocket. They're just giving them, you know, a stern lecture. And yeah, yeah. So, so I think. So if we if we kind of circle back to the the start of the show, you know, we we're talking about the COVID app um, right. on phones and. And, you know, even things like, you know, Qantas Air saying you're going to, we, we are going to require you to show some certification of, of vaccination yeah. before flying. By the way, that's, that's going to get them not a lot of run, I think. I think a lot of yeah. people are not going to use Qantas Airways. That's why I use Southwest. If you have a pulse, you can fly. It's the Hear only it. requirement. Hear it. Hey, you get a piece <laughs> of rope and you get a chicken and you hold the chicken, they give you $10 off. Spirit and, and Southwest, you have a pulse. You just got to be able to get yourself to the seat, and you're you you're solid. You're solid. So, yeah, you know. So I, I 
I want to, I want to talk about, it's kind of the last point I have here and then we can do some wrap up. But so in 2018, the city of Detroit, um, their council, the, you know, whatever the hell city council mm -hmm. voted to, um, give a mandate to their fire department, city of Detroit fire department saying, um, here are conditions where you can operate with lights and siren on your emergency vehicles. And here are conditions where you cannot. So behind the scenes, there were two things going on. One is people were complaining of saying, yeah, we live near a firehouse and the fire, the sirens and lights are disturbing. You know, like it happens too frequently and it's just, it's, we don't like this. Okay. And the second one is every time you respond with lights and siren, it's called an E3 response or basically an emergency, high emergency response. And then that gets charted. And those were increasing in Detroit. And if you look at that objectively, Obviously, you could say, well, there's a lot of responses in this city. Maybe, you know, I don't want to live here because of that or whatever. And it's a negative thing, right? If you have a whole lot of responses. And mm -hmm. so anyway, the city is saying, well, we're going to overlay these conditions, which they have no expertise. <laughs> They're just voted in by people to be on these committees, right? And in these positions, and um, they have no expertise. They don't know you know, and, and so I'm looking at this as a former firefighter. I'm like, holy smokes, like anytime you have a 25 foot, you know, 50 ton rig moving through your city, it should have lights and a siren. <laughs> like, even if it's like moving at 10 miles an hour, because, um, you know, they're, these are not easy to stop vehicles. And, and if you were to, you know, you just common sense, right? So the firefighter said, well, this is garbage. Like we shouldn't mm -hmm. have these conditions put on us, but they, so it was a standoff, right? For it's still kind of like a standoff right now. Um, but I'm looking at this and I'm saying, I'm thinking, this this was. I wonder how this will play out in the age of Corona, like in the modern day. Um, you know, what are going to what will be the city councils telling? You know, agents. You know, will there be something? Could there be something to a fire department of saying? we're going to notify you of uh, um, if you're, if you're responding to a residence where people have had Corona vaccine or whether they haven't, or for example, if you were to call in for public emergency and you haven't had the vaccine, mm -hmm. would that create some possible by bureaucracy, um, you know, measure which would interfere or delay this this dispatch of rescue services or other tiered services to you. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking at this saying this was this, you know, this is all before COVID, but now looking in the time of COVID, I don't know. I, I, I could, I, I have a bad feeling about how people who are not close to the reality of the issue, like the, again, these committee members in Detroit, they weren't firefighters. They didn't know, you know, they're, they don't understand right that anytime you're operating these type of equipment you you need to have these emergency signals going on because these things are very difficult to stop and and for safety um so i i'm very i, I want your take on wh what do you think could be some of the things that we see coming out of local municipalities of saying yeah we will we'll do this but under these conditions <laughs> like that we'll put in place yeah, we've just been voted on. I'm new. I'm here since March. I, I ran a campaign and I got on. I have no background and whatever. Well, 
I think the first thing that's going to happen is this. And they're going to talk to the lawyer. Okay. They're going to find what the liability is. Okay. Uh, my, my thinking is that you can't say you're going to be a first responder. Police, fire, EMS, hazmat, whatever it happens to be. And then make a discretion point about what part of the public you're going to help or not. Right. Okay. Um, now we've all heard that story about the, you know, the, the firefighting company that ran out to the fire, but the guy didn't pay. Yes. And, right. And then the house is burning down. He's writing a check. <laughs> okay. Now look, I get it. I, we've all seen that. Thing. Well, I can't imagine. Well, I can't imagine because this is, a, I can't imagine um, a police officer stopping you and go, do you know why I stopped you today? Not a reason, officer. Well, before we go any further, can I see your vaccine card? Right. And my answer would be what? No. You have to have probable cause to stop me. And probable cause shouldn't be do you have this? Now, I will get a little scary and a little dark. And what happens if they turn? that type of um, biological mandate into part of your identity. Right. Okay. That's a little scary to me. Uh, I can understand the driver's license saying you have a number, you know, you have the privilege to drive. This is your address. Here's your face. You know, that's fine. But when they, you know, there's a difference between did you get a shot, which you may or may not have wanted and, do you want to be an organ donor? Right. One is voluntary. One is right. not. Okay. Um, I'm very concerned about situations where, you know, our public officials will make decisions based on whether you have complied with something, whether you agree or not. And the other end is I'm very concerned that our public officials won't have the backbone to stand up and say, you don't have to comply. You know, right. certain, there, there's a certain things of rules you need to follow. You know, like we're all going to decide to stop at stoplights. But yes. yes, at the same time, we all don't need to take a multivitamin. That's a choice. You can make that decision. And when they start mandating, and mandate's the wrong word, when they start requiring that you have performed certain biological items in order to have a privilege, that's where it starts to become a little tricky for me. Okay. Yeah. Now, you know, I can understand, you know, if it's, you know, everybody is going to, you know, we're all going to make the decision that we're all going to stop at a stop sign. That's fine. Again, at what point, my question is, at what point do we start saying, no, you, we, I'll agree with this because I don't want to get hit by a car. Right. And I will not agree with this because it's not right for me. And where does that place play in? And that's one of the things I've been thinking about a whole lot. You know, where do you get to make that decision? You know, 
again, here in New Jersey, I, I can't go in the grocery store until I cover my face. Right, right. It's not an executive order is not a law. They call it a regulation. Who is this helping? And why am I doing it? And the answer is, oh, just do it. But nobody's right. questioning why we're doing it. Nobody's right. questioning, should we do it? Nobody's questioning, is it important to do it? We're just being told from somebody we don't know, and maybe we don't like, do something or else you cannot have a basic component. Yeah. Yeah. And Carol, I, I noted today that um, in New Mexico, um, a, a number of uh, grocery stores and even Walmarts have been closed for two weeks because four or more um, employees had tested positive for COVID. So now we're starting to see a magnification in some, at least in New Mexico, right? Where you can, you're having food deserts. I mean, people now are having to travel up to 30, 40 miles uh, to get milk, to get, right. uh, you know, whatever. And, and so that's like a new upping in this. And as you, you know, we've talked about this before, as we go back to PPE, people say you have to wear a mask. <laughs> but then if, if we took, if we sat outside of, of uh, a store, and just, you know, blurt out the faces, but record it, you know, the mask that 200 people are wearing. I mean, a <laughs> hundred would be homemade and who knows what 50 would be. And maybe 50 would be recognizable, you know, of, of, you know, some, some, you know, level that we could say, yes, this actually, you know, probably would be effective. But again, as you said, um, what, People standing up to this. I mean, someone's saying, yeah, if you're coming in to a, a store and you're wearing, yeah, this underwear <laughs> around your face or whatever, <laughs> or a crocheted, which I've actually seen, you know, mask. Mm -hmm. um, it, and this is where this is mind boggling to me. Wouldn't there be even hospitals or, or some agency that would have put up some testing station of saying, bring your mask if it's homemade and we'll we'll run it through this quick thing to give you a rating of it. There's nothing like that, right? There's nothing. Well, I can answer that question very okay. easily. The first <laughs> answer is, who's going to do that? Right. Who's going to pay for that? And the last question is, Who's liable? It shows up positive. It lights up like a Christmas tree. Who's responsible now? Right. I'm sure the, the corporate lawyer is going to run out and go, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> you know, right. well, well, that's not our mask. We didn't do that. We didn't ask you to come. That's, that's the problem. Because when you identify an issue, the biggest problem you're going to have is who's responsible for the issue. Oh, you're right on. You're on my property. Oh, well, wait a second. Now we got to have a talk. That's always, you know, I worked at the university. You know, if a, you know, a staff member fell down, slipped on the ice, right? You know, we had things that we could do. We'd fill out the OSHA form. We did this and that. Um, if a student fell down, okay, uh, there was a whole different level of procedure. If a visitor fell down, the question automatically became from the university lawyer. Well, was he on the public sidewalk or was he kind of on our property? Oh, right. 
Right. So it's it, it, so now it's no longer a level of somebody fell down. We want them to be safe and more sorry they got hurt. The question is, who's going to pay for that? Do we have to put that on the OSHA log? Don't we have to put that on the OSHA log? And that that's a big thing. That's why I think that this whole why would you not test your masks? You know, it doesn't it would make a lot of sense to um, have a qualified level of PPE. Yes. You're, okay. you're, and if not, maybe they could sell you something or, or say, okay, this doesn't meet it, but here is something we sell for a dollar if you want yeah. to come in the store. Listen, I've, I've been, I go, you know, I go to the store and it says, you need a mask. And if you don't have one, we'll sell you one for a dollar. Wait, what? How is that keeping me safe one more time? Right. It's not. What you're doing is you're just saying you're playing the compliance game. And, you know, the, the one thing I, uh, I'm reminded, um, carry of was that you know, uh, BF Skinner, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Yes, right? sure. he was the feeding Hebrew. the pigeon. Yeah. Remember, when he was feeding the pigeons, and then the pigeons would do these weird, elaborate dances, yeah. they'd flap their wings, and they would do different things. And they would get the food pellet, and they realized somehow, well, if we do these elaborate things, we'll get fed, right? And then you realize the pellets are being fed at random. There's no so again you said it before customer perceived value. If I'm doing this because it's the rules and everybody else is doing it and I'm gonna, you know, everybody else is gonna do this and I have to go in it. But there's never a question of what is the safety and when you actually ask the big questions, talk about is it keeping you safe? Talk about how it's being effective. Talk about what the negative consequences would be you get a really big cognitive dissonance shove in your face. Shut up. You have to do this. Instead of somebody having a realistic conversation going, you know, that makes a lot of sense. When was the last time you put that in the washer? Right. Oh, I haven't. And I just, but it, it could live on counters for days. Where was it? Oh, it was on my dining room table for two days. <laughs> right. Okay. You know, and, and Carl, this brings me to another point. And, um, and first, before we get there, I want to recognize what Andrew posted in the chat. He said, my local gas station put up a sign and marker in May that says everyone needs to wear masks. The ink is now sun-dried into a light brown color that's not readable. Now, Andrew, I want to say at an area chiropractor, they had something very similar in their window. And it was basically kind of like we support healthcare providers. And it was like, you know, done up in marker. And I, and I walk through this area, um, you know a couple times a week on a on kind of a walk that I do. And I'm like, it's all faded now. Like it's, it's, it's all. And, and this is, this is really, I, I think that's something of um, to note is, is yeah, these, these things got put up and then either people just um, didn't question them or it got fa fatigued and, but there, there's something really deep in the Andrew's, Andrew's message. I, I, I would say to Andrew, if he was sitting next to me, I would say it's called virtue signaling and then social attenuation, which are really yeah. big words for I did it because it felt good and we looked good, but we attenuated. We, we didn't we didn't follow up on that. Right. We never bought the guy in the ambulance a sandwich. We never it just we put up a sign and it felt good. And everybody saw the sign, but we didn't actually do anything besides put up a sign. And now we've forgotten the sign exists. 
Oh yeah, no, no, they've they've completely uh, forgotten that the sign. Yeah, if, if you, you want to drive me right up a wall with all this stuff, I'll go to the grocery store. I've got to do my pigeon dance to buy the milk and the meat, right? Right. And then I look down and I look on the ground, and there's two masks and three gloves in the parking lot. Yeah, absolutely. It. And how about you know you're, you're going through the fruit? Biohazard guys, are we? Who's cleaning this up? You know, where's the guy in the little suit? Yeah, you're going through the fruit and vegetable section, and I'm literally watching somebody in front of me, like, you know, test like 10 mangoes to see which one has the right firmness, and then put them back in, you know, the, the holder now, there. And I'm like, go, holy go shit. Back, back <laughs> like, back, that is crazy. Go back one year in time. The lady who's actually picking up the watermelons or the mangoes and they're squeezing them to find out which is the freshest one, what would you think? Oh, they're a choosy shopper. Right. Yeah, they know what they're, they're doing. They're trying to find the, the right value for them. But now suddenly, if you touch your head and then you touch a wall, and there's a, the sirens go off. and they Oh, yeah. Yeah, no doubt. People are really staring you down. I mean, you put something well, back on a shelf after you've taken it. And, you, know, and you know, you you have to do this. You have to take it, take a bite and put it back. You <laughs> send them off. Uh, my kidding. daughter did that when she was like four. Yeah. Like, yeah. The, so the, I'm going to bring this this graphic up. So this is um, the velocity of information, which is a graphic that accompanies the book by its name, which I'm uh, working on right now. The velocity of information, um, you know. So so you know what we're what we're talking about. Uh, a few things in here, and, and one I want to note is um, over here in the end of, of March, this availability cascade. So it's right Ooh. here. I'm circling it. I'm going to make it a little bit bigger here. I'm going to center in on it. And we're talking about it right now. But basically, you know, so the coronavirus base, you know, hits in the U.S. This is when the N NBA shuts down, NCAA, Disneyland shuts down. I know we, had, we, were, we were supposed to fly to Disney. It got canceled three days before. This availability cascade is really important because that's when all of the media started to cover coronavirus. And then it would just be like, what can be the next story about coronavirus, how it affects mm -hmm. schools and how, and then people were bringing out crazy things like the spray bottle of, okay, if you sneeze, this is a spray bottle, spray bottle. This is how particulate matter goes. Although it's like a spray bottle. It's not you actually sneezing. Is, is um, everybody just lucky that they didn't like send uh, <laughs> handheld flamethrowers? I mean, just be happy. You can see what would have happened, right? And we had all of these emails coming to us from these companies like, hey, you know, here from Calvin Klein, you know, thanks for, you know, we're just here for you in case of, you know, anything we can do for you and stuff like that. So um, and then we got into this wet bulb effect of everybody just getting saturated with information. All the news is COVID, COVID. Um, and uh, but but yeah, I mean, this is this is some pretty cool, you know, pretty interesting stuff. And and um, but well, I, I wanted to go back, you know, just on this this cascade effect of when everybody is talking about COVID, it just becomes, as you said, this categorical imperative, Carl. People just, it's just, a lot of them, it just soaks Therefore, in. we must do it. Yes. We should not question it. We must do it. Well, why do you have to do it? Well, do you want to buy milk? Well, do you and want it, to go into the grocery store? Yeah. Well, and, and those type of things are when people stop. Well, first of all, you're right. It's a wet bulb effect. The problem is that people... They get saturated with the information and then they attenuate. They just become, as you said, fatigued. And it's just like, oh, to hell. Um, I'll just put on the mask to get, to get the milk. 
Why am I doing this? Well, I just want the milk. They stop asking critical questions. Right. And they start simply performing behaviors. And they're not asking if the behaviors are correct, incorrect, oh, really good. right, wrong. They're just simply going. What was that experiment? I don't remember it. Was um, it the, the one where they were shocking the dogs. No I, matter what the dogs did, they would shock the dogs. And the dogs finally just laid down. Right, right. It becomes a sense of learned helplessness. Right. Where they simply just go, I can't win. I can't do this. I'll just do whatever you want because I just, I just want to buy the milk. Right. I just want to get the groceries. I just want to buy a thing again. And, and instead of um, standing up and going, why are we doing this again? No, 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 you're right. You're right. I, you're right. I, and I think that's a great point that you brought up is attenuation. Component, it's done. Because when you start critically thinking – you start getting criticized, and now you're under the gun. You're under stress from performing unnatural behaviors, and now you got a guy next to you screaming at you, right? Because you're not performing unnatural behaviors. And what's happening here, Carl? And in, 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 and I'm going to go. Andrew wrote, "I worked on election day. A young guy had a blue surgical mask that looked so dirty that he had been using it since May. I actually had a mask that I had used just when I went down to the local." gas station to get a coffee in the morning before I'd start oh, my consulting. And that thing and coffee. It's hard. It, it just, well, uh, I I don't have high standards in coffee, but this thing just stunk. I mean, it was just rancid because I had used it and it was a compliance issue. Right. I mean, and so I did replace it with the nurse who the cut a hole in the mask and said, it's easier to breathe that way. I, this thing smelled awful. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, it was it was absolutely absolutely insane. But um, but yeah, it, it, we had talked uh, to you know um, Carl and I had, had referenced the Milgram experiment. Milgram experiment was um, done at um, a university, and basically, a professor dressed up in a, a lab coat was telling people to shock um, um, participants, and it was remember to, you couldn't see the participants. Right. You couldn't see them, but you could hear them. They'd be like on the other side of a wall. And it, the whole thing was to to test the effect of, you know, it's kind of like a Ghostbusters. They had a, they, they had a little um, <laughs> um, uh, a reference to it at the start of Ghostbusters where they're shocking the, the guy who's like ah, a couple of wavy lines, like, you know, trying to, you know, mental telepathy. But um, but basically it was, OK, you're going to administer the shock and we're going to see if, if they perform better on academic task. And yet, like they progressively would have people turn this up and there would be a, a, a red area on this. So you not only had numbers one through 10, but once you got to seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, it got to be red. And then these other people who are actors, they would just see a light come on on the other side. They weren't being shocked, but they would see the light and they'd be like, Oh, like, you know, you have to stop doing this like this. I have a heart condition or you could kill me. And then they would. So the, the person that they hired for $5 to participate in this experiment, and so, first of all, at the start of this, they thought maybe, I think it was, Carl, I think it was like 6% is what they thought people would comply when it got to the red zone of actually. They, they, they thought 4% would comply. 4 Holy shit. 6% would be encouraged. And, right. And so what would happen is they were expecting that at some point in time when somebody would get to the red end of the dial, they would go, we're not going to hurt anybody. 
Right, right. They were like, no, no, I'll just walk out. And and, and what did it turn out? I mean, I, I did a show on this. I don't know. It, but it was something like, what, like 80% of the people would look and they'd say, okay, this person has a lab coat. This is a university. There's some positionality here that they must know what they're doing. I'm just going to go with it. <laughs> That's the appeal to authority, right? Right. You know, if, if you really want, if you really want to infiltrate a Walmart, go in with a high vest, va- uh, high visibility vest, and a clipboard. Walk like you know what you're doing. Nobody will stop you. And right. That's the appeal to authority. What they'll think? Oh my gosh, he's doing work. He's fine. And um, you know that that was one of the other things we had at the university, which I will tell you, which was. You know, when everybody wears a lab coat, nobody yeah. wears a lab coat. So you could have the smartest MD, PhD say to you, go over here. And we they would look at you and say the reverse. They go, I have a lab coat too. Right. So think about that for one second. When you start to make an appeal to authority and then everybody is the authority, nobody's the authority. Right. So that's a that's a very interesting approach because then you start really having some real difficult times because people will start saying, "Who are you? Who put you in charge?" You know, listen, the fire alarm went off. You have to get out of the building. Who put you in charge? They they start because so, so, nobody's in charge. So the question right now is. Um, Who's in charge? It's the political figures, right? It's the people who have been appointed or the governors. I mean, who are in these positions. And, and, um, but yeah, so like if I were to challenge or you were to challenge or anybody, you know, were to challenge these Mm -hmm. things of saying, like points we brought up tonight, like what if, you know, all of this funding you got from the CARES Act for your states or whatever, what if there was some way for people to come in and to test their PPE? (laughs) <laughs> you know, like how do how do we get on a stage with that? Where these? Because I I don't know I I don't have access to that even with the stuff that I've done I I have a lot of resistance to it. Mm-hmm. Just again, be quiet. Don't. Um, well, there there there's no oversight and there's no auditing. There's completely no auditing. No okay. auditing at all. It, it's all essentially we're going to make a rule today. And it's going to make us feel good. Now, two weeks from now, we're going to make a different rule because it feels better later. That makes it very, very hard for individuals to get adjusted. And that creates a lot of anxiety and a lot of resistance. You know, if, if when you go to a factory, like the, the, the manufacturing places I worked in, you have to wear Z85 plus, you know, lenses when you're on the factory floor. When? Always on the factory floor. What kind? Always the same kind. <laughs> right. Right. And and that brings people a, a certain level of comfort because they realize they, uh, they know what the rules are and they don't shift. When you start moving the goalposts around, people get agitated. They get angry. They get distrustful. They get upset. They get frustrated because they can never quite comply. They can never quite say I've done the right thing because in the next week 
it's different. Right. Okay. Oh, and that's and as you've as you've pointed out, I'm going to bring it up on this um, uh, on the screen again. So okay. one of the things that that I'm writing about in um, the velocity of information is mm -hmm. this thing of this concept of failure to regress to the mean. So once we got to um, you know basically to about May, so let's kind of go. Oh, I guess August. Once so. So once we got to August, so I, I created this entire diagram. I did have somebody um, help me put it into diagram form, which I'm very thankful for. Right. Um, but so this is all my my content. But basically, this this phenomenon. I, I was running this past other like researchers and stuff. I said, "What the hell do we call?" Well, first of all, finite voltage is when you get to 90 days in extended chaos. It's very rare to get there, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, people kind of lose their shit. Like it's a breaking point. Uh, a lot of languishing, a lot of people searching for like depression treatment. Objectively, we know this. A lot of people lose it, honking their horns, threatening people, stuff like that. Right, um, right. So that's one thing. Now, when you get beyond that, it's called crowded behavior. This is when people are like, it's never going to come back to normal. I don't know when it's going to come back to what I'm used to. Um, so they start to buy things that make them feel good. Like this is why puzzles started to sell through the roof, interior paint, a lot of nuanced things started to sell. Um, that, that weren't necessarily scarcity. So if you gave somebody $100 and they went down an aisle and on one side was puzzles and one side was toilet paper, they're not buying $100 of toilet paper. They're buying maybe $50 of puzzles, $50 of toilet paper once you get to crowding. Mm -hmm. So we get this thing they'll call failure to regress to the mean. So we get to um, September, October of this year and people are thinking, well, shit, like we're not coming back to February. It's not happening. We're not coming back to right. something similar to that. So this whole psychological failure to regress to the mean is really huge. So what happens then is, it, and so this has been updated. I updated this a, literally a couple of days ago. Um, we had this thing, the election basically was was kind of a black swan event of, of what happened after the election is a lot of, a lot of people regressed closer to the mean, meaning we had less co media coverage about politics, about civil unrest, um, and there was more like positive, okay, Pfizer has a vaccine that's whatever, 80% effective, all this stuff. Not that we're necessarily there, but the illusion is there that we're starting to regress to the mean. So this is this is some interesting stuff to look at um, okay. of how, how this, the election, I think the election, no matter what, was a black swan event looking in the rearview mirror of people were just so primed of like, we want some change. We want something to change, and we're assuming that the change will will get us back to what we believe was was this utopia of of February. Um, but this is this is interesting because a black swan usually uh, associated like the black swan would have been the start of the COVID, and it's associated with something bad. But black swan could be something good. Now I'm not saying like the election and everything is good. <laughs> I'm not going that far. I don't believe that at all. But I think in a lot of people's minds, they're like, okay. There's going to be a change. There's going to be an administrative, you know, change. We believe, you know, all of a sudden Pfizer is is looking like this shining night. Um, the uh, stock market was at thirty thousand today. Bitcoin's almost at twenty thousand again. So people are thinking, yeah, okay, we're this is good. This is good. And I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't quite know because here, there's a bottom part of this, Carl. And you, you know, you're aware of this. So there's a large scale acceptance of censorship by media and corporations. So basically people are like, okay, we understand Facebook 
and Twitter's kicked off a lot of people. There's mm-hmm. these little things underneath Twitter saying, you know, like here's, you know, there's more information about elections. Click here or something like that. This is dip- disputed information or just like getting people off. Stefan Molyneux, boom, you're gone. Yeah, and then right. this whole, you know, like AOC saying, hey, we should keep a list of people. That's really just saying that's truth and reconciliation. <laughs> like we should, we is should it have this. Thirty-four. Did the phone <laughs> ring? What's going on? <laughs> like <laughs> holy shit, that that didn't get stepped look, back. Look, that that, when, that when, you, when you accept control for normality, yeah. you don't get either. So so I'm looking at this saying, yeah, this is like a perception, and and I can see where people would be prime for thinking they're yeah. going to regress to the mean. But these are some huge freaking things here in this truth and reconciliation um you know that was kind of tossed out there and again the fact is i'm watching this and no one's walking this back no aoc doesn't come out a day later and say well what i what i really meant to say or after thinking about it more is you know we want to have inclusiveness for everybody or whatever no she stayed with her line and nobody on the democratic side said yeah we don't you know, we're, we're not for creating this list. And mm-hmm. what if there is this list, right? What if we, we're living in this environment of social credit score? That's why I wrote here, social credit score. Right. I've talked about that. So China has it, but it wouldn't be difficult to put it in place anywhere. In the U.S., you know, what if we say, here's the deal. You're going to get the vaccine. Carl, you'll get the vaccine and we'll give you a $1,000 stimulus check and you'll get the vaccine. The thing is, 80% of people, boom, they'd go for it. <laughs> 20% of people be like, yeah, I'm not sure. 85% of people at this point are so desperate because they're either um, underworking or because they're not working would be willing to do that in order to take care of themselves and their families. Okay. Yeah, I think 15% of them would say, no, thank you. And a very small percentage of those would say, I'd rather starve. You know, you're always going to have your outliers that are going to say, no, thank you. Right. Um, I think that, you know, it was a, I knew that we had crossed a really strange point when April and May. People are wandering around the parking lot going, why do I have to do this? Why do I have to put this on my face to what the, what the, right? Right. We get to June and July, and now people are just throwing them in their cars and hanging them on their, uh, yes. their mirror. Yes. And so suddenly we get to August or September or October, and there's no signs anywhere. I went, an example was I went in to vote you know, to drop my vote off. There yeah. was no sign anywhere in the voting area that said you had to wear a mask. And everybody was. It's a good, I noticed that it, at my local Walmart, for example, like on the floors, they had the one way thing, which no one did no, anyway. Right? By, by the time you recognize it, it's too late, but they, they removed all of that. All that was gone. Right. Same thing at the Aldi. They, you know, everybody had to queue up, right? And you all just stand in like aisle four and then wait to be called to go to a register. And then they hung up signs on top of the register said, you don't have to do that anymore. Just come <laughs> right. to a register. And what were people doing? Queuing up in aisle four and waiting to go to the register. So when I look and I go, I walk right past them and I just go to the nearest one. I just, they scream and yell and they go, what are you doing? You're cutting ahead. 
I point at the sign above my head. Oh, yeah. It says you don't have to do that. I don't know why you're standing there. Of course, I'm the bad guy. Well, that you know, and that's the thing. And, and we've talked about it. And, and, you know, for example, social credit score. And I've hit on this many times in my um, in my shows. And, you know, I follow uh, Tom Scott did a, you know, I'll just put the name down here. But there's a nice, uh, not nice, it's, it's a very intellectual video. It's less than three minutes long if you just type in Tom Scott plus um, social credit score. But mm. but I'm like, I don't think it would take much. I'm, I'm, I not only think this, I completely believe this. If you said to people, here's a deal. We're going to give everybody a social credit score. And part of this is if you get the COVID vaccine, if you're wearing a mask when you go into stores, you'll get like positive points for that. People are kind of conditioned for this, right? The Facebook people who want... I mean, I did I did research and it was the number of people, adults, adults, mm -hmm. Carl, who would put like, hey, should I wear this to, today to work or should I wear this today or going out on a date, this and this. And they would let the people vote and then they would make the decision based upon that. They're so externally driven. So if you just said, listen, here's the deal. We'll give you free Amazon Prime for, you know, if, if for life, if you get the vaccine. Again, as you said, I think 85 percent of people would be like, good, I'm in with it. Oh my word! <laughs> I, I agree. They would sign up quickly and go. Can 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 you give me something that shows that I don't have to pay for this again? So, right. and and that is that's very very sad when you start exchanging your freedom for something else. You really, I I don't think you get either one. I think you get half and half, and that's right. not really fair to you or to anybody else. You know, um, I do know from an EHS standpoint that when you start playing the game of, you know, the, and I hate to say this, you know, there, there's a rule. Let's say the EPA says don't do this. Okay, so we have to be compliant. We can't do this. Eventually, when the money starts to you know, get a little wobbly, the lawyers will show up and they'll start asking what do you mean by? And I think that people are very attuned to this. And I think that they will do the same thing. At some point in time, when something goes on long enough, people will start be asking, what do you mean by? And they're going to be looking for how to just chip the corners off of it. Oh, I have to wear a mask? Does it have to be a special color mask? Does it have to be? A, no, look, I have a mask. It's on the back of my head. It's right. doing that good. But, you know, it has to cover your face and nose. Okay. So they put a piece of plastic wrap over their face and nose and go, how are we doing? No, it, they're going to play this game because eventually people simply get tired. And they get angry. Right. And when they get angry, they act out. And they act out in very, you know, nasty ways. They act out in very unpredictable ways. You know, I can imagine somebody at the grocery store where I live screaming at somebody, put your mask on, and somebody just having enough. And just pushing them into the canopies. Because if they... People are going to have enough. And I think that what we're seeing today from EHS or anything else is that people simply haven't had enough. 
it's easier to comply to get on than it is to ask questions and get harassed. And that's very, very hard because it removes critical thinking. So so do you think, uh, so, so I guess where, where you're putting us at is this fork in the road. And whenever there's a fork in the road, you should pick it up because you never know when you need a fork, but um, or a knife, you got it or a knife. Right. Uh, but, but so, uh, so I kind of see it like going one of two ways right now. Right. So Qantas airlines, right. Which I never heard about until like on the news, but I, of saying, you know, you're going to have to have some COVID, you know, vaccine indication to get a passport. And I'm, I'm kind of looking at this as saying, uh, I'm looking at this too, saying, okay, like uh, the new driver's license, at least the one I have has a barcode in the back. So these things could technically be, you know, you could take this and it could be put into the DOT dat- database and they scan your driver's license. Mm-hmm. And yes. And then I'm thinking, okay, it has that, but not, you know, typhus or other things which are very prevalent in LA County and stuff like that. But anyway, um, mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, like we're really at this, this point of like, again, you know, I feel it. I'm, I'm thinking what would it take to get people on board with a social credit score? And then once you did that, you never would be able to come back. I mean, people went on board with the social, with, with um, what, what the hell was it? The, um, Patriot Act, right? Like take right. off your shoes at the airport where we can, right. we can, you know, eavesdrop any of your, your conversations. We're doing I, this to keep. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. At some point in time, it becomes, do you remember when we all wore suits and ties and dresses to go to the airport? And now we have the first grandma and this guy with the man bun and the, the sandals is just fine. We've right. lowered our standards. And we've pretended that it's safe and it's neither. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, so I'm, so I'm thinking, you know, the, the window of time for these critical decisions is, is short. I mean, I think it's like 60 to 90 days when these things will look back and it'll be like, this will be a vector. This is when the velocity, the speed and direction changed. And um, either we're going to just comply or we are going to have some people um, or political party, I don't know, mm-hmm. or states or whatever organizations stand up and say, no, <laughs> it's not happening. Or parents of saying, no, my kid's not going to be, you know, given this vaccine or whatever. But mm-hmm. I think we're down to like the 60 to 90 day window of something big to happen as a stand of saying, this is this is our line in the sand. Like this, we're not going to go beyond this. Do you think that that is the minimum requirement? Because I'm thinking it takes four months before something goes from, um, you know, you know, it's it feels like a good idea to, and now we must do it. And then they're going to find a way to force it in. They try with the executive orders. They don't work. So now they make regulations or emergency orders. They're not exactly good. So what is your thing? What do you think the minimum amount of time is before you can promote an idea and then it becomes adopted widespread? Wow. It's a good question. But I let's say that um, you know, this was this was part of you know the Biden administration coming out. In January, or let's say January 31st, saying okay. um, everybody is is 
we're we're going to require this national standard of everybody has to have a vaccine. There's no opt out. Like there's just no opt out. And the reason is reasons, whatever, whatever, um, to keep everybody, you know, safe um, for our economy, for the health of people. And you'll be given X amount of time to to get the shot. The shot will be documented. And then also, you know, we will have these these things, which will be a, a tax credit or you'll be able to access more things. And I guess I, I see it pretty bluntly, right? I see it as if you don't comply, there could be things we're saying, we'll take your, we'll take, you won't be able to, enter, you won't be able to buy things off Amazon. Your credit will be, be limited. Your, you'll have additional um, restrictions. And eventually, like, if you don't have this, you'll lose, you'll forfeit your property. I, I don't know. I, I think we're at this point that I, I, I don't know about the four, six months. I, I think this could be like a February. If you scare people, enough i mean and if you tell people and the other part is i think if you just convey to people <laughs> this will return you to normal because the thing is the normal and i've i've written about this there is no such thing as normal right there's a torus that we kind of get used to what our daily things are and every day it changes there's always this progression but if you promise this to people if you say we will move you closer to what normal was i think there's a lot of people i mean not you and i carl but there's like 80 percent of the people be like that yes that's great because they believe last February was awesome. Like, you know, there were, there were no problems last February. This is, as you said, with memory, you know, and people kind of like think past the sale, like they're thinking that's when everything was awesome. We had no problems with anything. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and I, I think you could look at these things and say, you know, we'll, we'll give you um, some things which are pretty, pretty inconsequential to us. Yeah, we'll we'll arrange for this tax credit. We'll arrange for whatever, and and if people are like, I can get back to my NFL games. I can go to the stadiums. I can. I don't have to wear a mask when I'm doing. I just don't think people think through this as much. No, they don't. And <laughs> if eighty percent of people are willing to go with it, and we're the twenty percent who aren't, like we will be pressured. People will be out in front of our homes, like in school boards in Wisconsin. Get this, Carl. School boards that voted to like go like you know in person or virtual like if it was a split vote like there were people in the community who were trying to recall the board members because they either wanted the kids in person or virtual i mean this was and people are getting threats at their homes um i and that's one thing i talked to my superintendents in fall in my class and i said what's one of the biggest things now they're like our board just trying to keep our board members that they don't quit because people in the community are harassing them Right. Or like, you know, teachers are coming up to him and saying, how can you ask me to teach because this virus has, is killing people? How can you? Isn't it amazing that all these anti-bullying programs created so many bullies? It's just crazy. It doesn't make sense to me. You know, when an individual says, you know, I'm looking at science and data and I think everything's okay. And the person who's loudest in the room is supposed to win. Right. That's tantrum. And not you, being louder doesn't make you right. It just makes you louder. And when you can't penetrate that that conversation, and this happens a lot in EHS, you get a lot of resistant people, okay? And you say to them, listen, I need you to whatever happens to be. No, 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 no. And eventually what happens to those people in a situation like that is they get fired. They get moved on. They, 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 they remove their position. It's very hard to remove your position in the public. 
No, it is. It's very hard hard for me to say, why is this person screaming on my front lawn? It's easy if they're on my front lawn, but if they're screaming in the street and yelling at my house, making my dogs crazy, I'm trying to go to bed. What do you do? Call the police for a disturbance of the peace? Right, exactly. And then they'll come out and it'll stop for a little bit and then they'll be right back. Uh, we, you know, we have something in the neighboring next day. You're right. Uh, community here where um, so it, it made national news. Um, it was it was an, um, a high school um, prom picture which was taken and um, some of the students appeared to be giving a, a Nazi salute. Okay. Oh, I saw that, yes. Oh, okay, so yeah. So what happened... Okay, so this again is like, you know, it's a neighboring community. It's 15 miles away from me. Teachers, all right, who were teaching social studies at that time at the high school, like young teachers in, a, in their 20s, they were being doxxed. So people are finding out, they're going through, you know, their, the website, they're finding out who these teachers are in these, and they're saying, you know, you're not doing a, a proper job instructing these students. This is partly on your shoulders, teacher. And so these teachers' homes are coming up on maps. And I'm seeing this stuff in real time. As I'm kind of monitoring the situation too, I'm like, holy God, you know, like in the district is trying to do like damage containment and all of this. Right. Um, but but at the meantime, they have individuals who are being singled out and, and people going online saying, go to this person's house, you know, like, and, and, you know, um, yeah, yell. And, you know, and, and so these people were leaving their homes. And they were going and, and they had, you know, for a couple of weeks, they were living someplace else and they didn't know if it was safe to come back. And it's just like, I, I, I wasn't part of this picture. I'm a social studies teacher in this district. And that's the thing where I think this ability to dox people and, and to generate this. at um, And again, what and what does it look like at a workplace? You know, uh, too, like if you're working someplace, it, it puts you at risk because employers like, oh, I just can't put up with this, you know, like. Um, you know, you're, you're our employer, you're doing a good job, but this is bringing negative. Mm-hmm. Or if you're like working for a company, someone could say, I don't agree with your position on this. You're creating a negative work environment, Carl or David. So now like, you know, we're going to separate employment because like your beliefs on this or this public thing against with a vaccine or just, just like an intellectual discussion, right? Right, right. Has, has created, um, has, has created some uncomfortable feelings with people. So we are going to part ways with you. We're going to separate that, employment. And I'm that, like, this happens all the time. Yeah. And I'm like, whoa. Yeah. I, I cannot imagine, well, now because I live here and now, that I can imagine a company creating a code of conduct that says, if you hurt somebody else's feelings, that may be grounds for dismissal. Which I think is positively garbage because <laughs> you're an adult, suck it up. But at the same time, I have signed codes of conduct, okay, where it said you can do whatever you want on your free time. However, having said that, if you go do something, let's say you go to a protest and you're wearing company logo or you're shown on camera or you're recognizable then because you are always a representative of the company. If the company does not represent those ideas or values, you can be terminated. Right. Okay. Right. Which is kind of like saying, 
it's your First Amendment right unless we identify you because it's your First Amendment right, and then we can terminate you. I understand the concept of being, a rep, as you just said, a representative of a school system, representative of a company. That makes sense. However, liking chocolate milk instead of strawberry milk should not be grounds for harassment or dismissal. Right. Okay. And at some point in time, I'm going to ask that question, which is when does an individual get to make choices beyond that of what their employer wishes? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I, it, and what I, what I share with my, um, you know, my school leaders when I'm instructing them, I said that the easiest um, and swiftest takedown in school administration, for example, is to claim hostile work environment. If somebody claims that someone else has, has contributed to a hostile work environment because they're, they don't seem friendly, they don't seem like they're, they're, um, giving fair time to someone else's ideas or proposals. I mean, these types of things, not where someone is coming in <laughs> and yelling at somebody or threatening them. I mean, we're talking about things which, uh, as you said, Carl, you know, would be sit down and have a discussion about this. I mean, maybe it's, maybe you disagree on something and wouldn't you want that also in an organization? You don't want people just agreeing to things. You want people to have different opinions, but, but I'm like, if you, I, and I, I've warned him. I said this whole thing of um, hostile work environment is the most dangerous human resources component of of these settings. And and it's not only schools. It's I believe it's in public um, or in in private companies and so forth. Because I mean it's so ambiguous, right? And for a company, at some point they just get to where they consult with legal and they say, "All right, Carl, or all right, Steve, or Carol, or whatever." we're going to buy you out of your contract and mm -hmm. no one's at fault, but you know, I'm sorry. This just has to be the way that it is. Right. It's just, it's just, it's easier to pay you off and make you go away than it is to actually deal with the problem. Okay. Same thing happens in EHS. Most common issue is back pain. It's okay. hard to describe. It's hard to diagnose. It's hard to anything. And how do you quantify it? So the minute you hear OSHA and back pain, the easy answer is, well, temporary disability. Boom. Okay. Company's taking care of that. Um, how's your back feel? Still hurts. Well, let's go to a doctor. Doctor says my back still hurts. He took an MRI. He sees something a little wiggly over here. Now it's permanent disability. Now the company's got to pay for you forever. Right. Nothing's ever been proven. I mean, it, it's different if a fellow falls off a ladder and he breaks his back. You can kind of see that. But like you just said, you're claiming something that is really um, individual and unquantifiable. Yes. And as a result of that, we have to respond to that. And 30 years ago, it might have been, I'll get over it. And today, you know, they don't want to get over it. They don't want to say my back hurts. They don't want to say whatever. The, the last thing they want to have is a thick piece of lawsuit paper show up. Right. Because it costs them money and time and, and for something you can't quantify. So it becomes, 
as far as I know, it becomes easier to go stop or settle. Right. Okay. Right. And that, that's where I think that we all are kind of sitting right now. We're at, we're not saying, is this right? Is this wrong? What are we doing? It's stop or settle. It is. We're fatigued. We just, fine. Is this what you need me to do to buy grocery? Fine. I'll just, just do it. Just leave me alone. Right. Okay. And I think that, you know, that's people. This is me. I'm on I'm my soapbox. This is people trying to re-express their autonomy. Yeah. Please leave me alone. I just want to go do this. Please don't harass me. Stop looking at me like this. In the EHS world, it's, I want to do a good job. I don't want to get hired, hollered at by the manager. I just want to do my work, and I just want to go home. And that level of fatigue, yeah. you know, from the stress that's just coming all the time. You know, you, you can't even talk to anybody anymore without running into cognitive dissonance and just, right. you, know, you just can't. Right. And so people just give up. They put their hands up in the air and they just go, yeah, well, fine. What do you want me to do? No, I, I, I think you're right there. And I, I think that's, you know, once, once um, finite voltage was reached at 90 days, a uh, majority right. of, of the population right, right. was doing that. And then, then even people who necessarily weren't impacted by finite voltage, you know, like they, they had means to, to work around that or, or had their own type of circuit breakers. Um, I, you're, you're right. I think they look, they analyze this and they're like, what does it take to um, function within this new system? Is it to, is it to wear the mask? Is it to agree? What, you know, um, and so, so I think, yeah, 90 days, you have the people who are just like, whatever. And then even more, you know, people are thinking at, at deeper levels of it, get to a point where they're like, well, what do I need to play? What are the rules of the game? And I, I and, and that's yeah, what I need to do to play cut. that. And as I, corners get cut. What do I need to play the game? And then it's how little do I need to do to play your game? Oh yeah, it, it, I get away with. As you said, it, it, it's the people. It, it's someone pulling a mask out that you know hasn't been washed, or you know a disposable that hasn't <laughs> they've had for nine months and they've worn it. And then as as soon as they're done, it gets thrown back into the you know a pocket or the car, or a, a car, and, and then it gets brought out. And and you know, so so yeah. So I think we're at this 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 point where. It'll be interesting to see what happens with the new administration of of what is proposed, because again, I, I, you know, I wasn't big, I, I wasn't very aware of social credit score until maybe two years ago when China started to really roll it out. In, in China, how it manifests largely is like transportation, for example. Like here's you can use the train if you have a higher social credit score. Social credit score means like you haven't gotten into trouble subjectively you don't have a lot of debt of that like. yeah you've been helping other people out or whatever and so you have a social credit score and it's, it's public and then you also know what it is and let's let's hypothetically say it's 700 it's kind of like a, a a credit score here if you're going to get a loan or something like that but and then and then you have certain things accessible to you and it, if it's below that in china then you can't ride on a train you have to take a bus and some other things but in the u.s you could do a social credit score and roll out all of these integrated things of saying, hey, like you can get free Google suite if you have above whatever for social credit score. And if it falls below, you're going to have to 
pay $5 for your Gmail or you get Amazon Prime or, um, you know, uh, getting into to restaurants or gas stations or a tax credit. I mean, so, you, you could put these the bribe, but okay, I keep talking. Oh I yeah, mean, you you could you could put these you could put these things together, which would would and then people would basically they're already addicted to going online. They could go online and check their daily scores and what you could do to contribute to your score. And it's it's basically this um, you know a Skinner a behavioral approach, right? You're you're just mm-hmm. trying to condition people to do things to raise the score of these measures that subjectively someone says these are what we want a uh, a citizen to exhibit, right? Well, and then also maybe, disassociation, right? So if someone isn't it doing interesting this, interesting if you got the credit scores of your neighbors and you they were presented in front of you, and then it became kind of a competition. Well, I think you're Carl. You're right, and, and that's the way this model, per what I've read on social credit score, right, is is part of the way social credit score is is effective is if you do make it public. Um, so, so you can identify and you're right though, right? Wouldn't that be even, uh, think about a realtor, a realtor saying, here's a neighborhood where the social credit score average is 708. I mean, that's appealing, right? If the social, if the high score is like a 750 and you're like, well, this is a 708 neighborhood we can live in. It becomes this whole weird thing. And then, I mean, how do you adjust that also for, um, cultural and racial and, and stuff like that. It would all kind of be part of this mix, but I mean, people would be working crazy to, to get these social credit scores. I mean, it would be their badge. I mean, you would, you would interview or people would be telling you I'm a seven fourteen. <laughs> I right. mean, it would be front and center. They would want that almost to be known or maybe like imagine this a community where if you had a certain social credit score even like a gated community you got a certain emblem on your your house or something to indicate this was a house of a whatever credit score i don't think it's that far out there to think about these things and and if you i don't think it's a costly venture at all i think people themselves if you put the structure in place but the fact is it gets it's really bizarre and insane if you th- it once you think about it right um and, and you can have negative things like oh you know we've decided that eating meat isn't will not will decrease your credit score and if you're a deer hunter yeah i mean if you do that this will decrease your it will be this massive shaping on a level that we've never seen but again i i believe it can happen very rapidly. And, if, and I think about a lot of people if, could be sold if, on if it. If they wanted to play this game, you're right. 60 to 90 days, suddenly it's magic. There'd be 15 different apps, and everybody would be comparing themselves to everybody else. I think that the only answer to that before we go is they would have to keep it local because I don't think that comparing yourself to a guy halfway across the country is going to have any kind of perceived value. However, Comparing yourself to other people in your neighborhood or your town because it's a much smaller event would be much more powerful. And then you'll be more encouraged to beat the next guy. And, yes, you're right. You would see the next thing, which is, hi, I live in, you know, Thomastown. All of us are 702 credit or higher. And. (laughs) 
you know. Now, but if you don't have a 702, well, you know, the realtors aren't really going to sell to you. We're not going to do that. And what happens when somebody lives in that town and their credit score slides? What if it's an HOA? What if an HOA uh, has a condition where you, if it falls below a certain level, the HOA you need give, days to sell your house, give you a certain amount of time to to remedy that, or they can say um, you agree that if your if your score falls below this, um, you have to put your mark your house on the market in sixty days. Holy shit, Carl! Imagine that. Well, that sounds to me kind of, you know, a little bit better than coming and tagging my trash can. But yeah, you know, yeah, I would I would agree with that. That 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 level of control on the individual is a little intrusive and I'm not a big fan. I would also say that it's not a hard skip to say an individual who and I keep saying it over and over again if the information is voluntary is going to get themselves in a lot of trouble. And that's why I tell everybody the same thing over and over, you know, your credit score is a public thing, right? Right. Okay. Um, there's nothing you can do about that because they tap on it. Um, but information you're going to provide to others as let's say part of this amazing social credit score. Yeah. Don't. Just don't. Right. You know, um, and, you know, you know, my concern from an EHS standpoint is when do we stop doing things that we know are overly intrusive and have no effective value? Right. And we start installing things that are an effective value. You know, I would much rather know that the people next door to me you know, are, you know, honest, hardworking people and they're fine, but I don't care what's going on. Now, if they have 14 dogs, I'd, I'd probably be okay. But if those dogs are running around the yard. I'd have a problem, right? right. At one the point, time, dogs, yeah. yeah. At one point in time, we have to say, when can people just do their thing without disrupting somebody else? And that's what we were talking about for EHS. When can an employee do their thing? without compromising somebody else. Right. And where do we draw that line? And that's the that's always the most interesting question for me. Where do we draw the line between individual behavior and necessary requirements? Great. Yeah, that's it, it for it's me. It's a great question. And, and and I think and I think what we what we're seeing is a push toward you know more requirements, more compliance and less individual um, determinism over I, I agree. contact and situation. I see much more compliance-based safety than I see anything else, than I see behavior-based. And I think it's because the behavior-based, whether it be you're going to the grocery store or you're, you're working at a paint factory, has to be the individual makes individual decisions about what they're going to do. Where in compliance, you don't get the choice. You get told what you're going to do, whether you like it or not. And the right. reason is, if you don't do it, we lose money. You know, an individual can say, I choose not to do it because I think it's not going to help. And again, compliance-based safety is really big now. 
mainly from, uh, you know, from, you know, the fines, fees, sustainability. Right. You know, we think about that. And now you go back to what you just said before, and that is individuals making choices instead of your town saying you have to do something. And there's a huge difference between pick up after your dog and you have to wear a mask in your own house. There's a huge difference between those two in my mind. Right. Wow. So, Carl, um, Oregon, just just so you know. What? That's in Oregon. Really? You have to wear a mask in your own house in some places in Oregon, which I think is just positive nonsense. That's just silly. And I look at these things, and I, I, I've I've learned that more communities are communi- um, are participating in, in ring um, doorbell surveillance with their police departments. So basically, so you know, is is you know who's going to monitor, who's going to do these things? Well, you know, these surveillance networks are pretty thick. And I, you know, I was listening to a recent interview with Edward Snowden. So you know, the NSA, mm-hmm. I guess, spy. Although I, I tend to <laughs> appreciate a lot of what he presents during his interviews, but um, just recently he said, um, you know, anybody thinking that they're going to hide under the, the surveillance nets that have been put out there by these big systems, they're kidding themselves, right? Nope. But he said, he even for himself, he said, if I had to basically, you know, vanish, it would be almost impossible for me to do as, as a typical citizen outside of being Edward Snowden, you know, just being whatever, John Smith. But he said, you know, what you can do, obviously, is just to limit your interactions and try to put yourself further down on the radar and yeah. and let the noise of the other people of doing, you know, all mm-hmm. of this stuff mm-hmm. kind of because he said, really, you know, it would take a lot of effort even for an algorithm or for the people behind it to like single you out. But um, I thought that was a value. But then also... Um, I had I had this um, well I I did a video of it was Pullman Washington it was like a forty five second video I put together and I shared it on the internet back in March and um, they had up on their website for the police department where you could I uh, um, report social gatherings that were in violation of the the new city regulations like five people or more and so basically I I recorded this I went through it and. It had, um, so th- there were a few things that were really strange about this, Carl. One is like the, the coronavirus kind of hit, slammed the U.S. in the middle of March. And two weeks later, this very sophisticated website was out in Poland, Washington. So you could take pictures of your neighbors and upload it to the site. It was on the site. I have I have video capture of this. I went through mm-hmm. it. You could take a Google map and drag over where these people were, and it would automatically populate the address or the coordinates. And then you could do a narrative and then you submitted it to the city. And I'm thinking, well, that's like a public document. That's a public document right now. If it you're taking these document. pictures of your neighbor and you're saying five people were together for grilling out and they were, and that was before the whole mass mandate. It was just right, like, right, right. so I'm like, where is all of this information stored in, in, and does it get to be a point where who's proving this to be true or false? Right. So for example, Deep fakes, like deep fakes are a huge problem. Right. And and I talked to my superintendents this fall and they said, shit, if someone, Davis, someone brought a phone to me and they said, um, here's a video of a kid that was saying something or a teacher or something um, 
you know, that was, was in, inappropriate, um, you know, again, a violation of, of school code of conduct. Um, but all, but they don't, they're looking at this and they're saying, okay, you did this. And the person's like, well, yes, that's me in that context, but I never said that. So it's a deep fake and you're just it's trying to fake. figure out what's going on. And, and, and the soup is like, what would I do? Like, I don't have the resources to do this. I don't have, you know, so in the police department and, and I found out, so my, my friends in the FBI, I was asking them, I said, how, how hard is it to figure out what's accurate and what's not in deep fake? Do you just run it through a program? They're like, yeah, it's not that easy. Like actually like for, for a school or for like a small business, like this would be a pretty expensive time consuming yeah, thing Got it. to do this. So so the question is like, um, you know, how does all of this get manipulated too within, um, you know, coronavirus of someone taking a picture, manipulate, they don't like their neighbor or they have a drone and they're just flying around the neighborhood trying to find people and report right. them. I'm like, holy shit. Like this is this, 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 this site in Washington was just terrifying. And I'm glad I took the archive of it and I have the video because I'm using it in my book, but I'm like, we're, it's kind of a Stasi thing, right? Like all yes, of us it is. be incentivized to report on people who aren't complying with these. And we could get social credit points for, right. for yeah. participants. I can see that. Now, but because we because it is getting late here on the East Coast, yeah. I would say two things to you. Yes. Number one, um, I do remember my buddy who's an attorney who said to me that when you're in public, there is no expectation of privacy. Now, I'm also from New Jersey. I'll hold his other hand up and say, snitches get stitches. Okay. <laughs> so it depends on where you go and what you do. Because I'm absolutely sure that in situations like that, if you saw somebody screaming, yelling, carrying on, taking pictures at their phone, at some point in time, push is going to shove. And there's going to be a problem. And that's a very, very, very bad thing. Because now your neighbors aren't your neighbors anymore. They're just right. people. They're people in your environment, and they're questionable. And now you get become, you know, you get a little nervous. You get a little upset. You get a little whatever because you're not sure if they share your values. You're not sure if they right. share your ideas, and therefore you tend to insulate again. And now it just kind of spins on itself. And what I when, and what I learned in in Washington in, in in that community that did this, it wasn't people in the community. It was outside people coming into the community who would drive around for four or five hours a day trying to find people who were violating this. Oh, so it wasn't even maybe you should maybe you should crochet a mask. I mean, what do you want? <laughs> so it was like it, it it was this bizarre thing, and I think it, it got taken down. But again, thankfully, I archived. I, I completely archived it. Um, but. Um, it was local. It was here in, in Dane County next to me and they took it down maybe in a week or two. Um, but yeah, so, so, well, anyway, well, Carl, I want to thank you for, first of all, all of your time tonight. Second, for all of your wisdom and insight, this is, this is a discussion. Um, I will go back and take notes from, um, I really appreciate the discussions we've had, um, your expertise, um, in, in, uh, hazmat bio, uh, Matt, uh, rad match, just understanding emergency uh, systems, understanding, um, you know, you really brought intelligent uh, discourse to the PPE, which um, I've, I haven't had anybody on the show that could bring that background. Um, and, and yeah, uh, really intellectual uh, discussion. So I, I appreciate everything that you brought to this show today. Uh, wish you well in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And, um, and yeah, 
So maybe if it's like another daylight savings time, you can turn your clock ahead, grab an extra hour of sleep because I know this one has gone long. But uh, I really appreciate your time tonight. This was a great show. We talked about a lot of terrific stuff here. Thank you. I'm so proud to have been able to speak to you. And if you ever need to talk to me again, I'm full of wrong answers. So (laughs) gotcha, buddy. So, yeah, I'm going to give a shout out here to our good friend, Mick DeBiss. He said, Carl, great discussion. Yeah, definitely. And we had some uh, new people in the in the chat, too. um, You know, Ted, you guys, please come in and subscribe to the channel. Um, And again, thank you so much, uh, Carl. So uh, take care, buddy. Thank you, David. I'll see you tomorrow. All right, sounds good. See you, Carl. This has been the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio show host, and leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Remember to check back each week for the latest, best, and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. You can find Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, The truth will keep you safe.